Welcome to Shoot the Corecast, the official companion podcast to the RF Generation Shmup Club. This is the family-friendly Shmup-themed podcasts that's one step closer to the edge, and we're about to break. Or double break, if our meter is full enough. From RFGeneration.com, I am Metal Fro, known throughout other parts of the interwebs as the Game Boy Guru, and alongside me as always is... Addicted, also known as Addicted to Shmups. And we are pleased to have a guest with us this month, the esteemed Mark MSX from the Electric Underground Podcast. Welcome, sir. Hey, my dudes. The extra esteemed these days. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, as always, rfgeneration.com is the place you want to be. Uh, we've got lots of cool stuff on the website, a huge database where you can track your game collection. We have great forums where you can have cool discussions, such as the Shmup Club, that you can come and join in and play alongside us. We've got the regular monthly playthrough as well, that's hosted by Single Banana and Ghost 81 and other cool stuff, plus articles on the front page that you can read, of which both Addicted and myself are contributors. So again, rfgeneration.com. And also, if you're looking for an excuse to go back and play some games in your NES library, we are doing a challenge this year where we're trying to play through the entire U.S. licensed NES library. And we're pretty far along. We've got, uh, I want to say, over 250 games completed at this point. So uh, lots of stuff yet to play, however, and lots of cool games um, left in, you know, in case you want to jump in. I'd like to give a shout out to Cointin Goku for the five-star review on iTunes. Thank you very much. Yes, Thank you very much for that. In fact, I actually pulled that up so that uh, 
I could read it because I thought it was timely given uh, the fact that we've got Mark on the cast here. He says, there are officially two podcasts <laughs> that are in English that continue to entertain and meet my never-ending demand to satisfy my hunger for shmups. Thank you guys so much for putting the time into presenting a top-notch podcast. So yes, thank you, Coin Tengoku, for your kind words and for um, you know listening and subscribing. We appreciate it. Awesome. I wonder if he was talking about my podcast or Sensei Pong. Well, <laughs> I, I imagine he's talking about yours, but uh, who knows? We'll have to we'll have to ask him about that. I hope Sensei Pong can. Uh come on your shows at some point or come on my show one of our shows that'd be cool yeah that'd be uh that'd be great we could have uh sort of the shmup podcast trifecta <laughs> the club definitely well the game that we played during the month of march is crimson clover world ignition and uh addicted you want to shout out our participants for the month sure we had Mendelfro, addicted lord orb four zoido Dingo, Square Air, Normatron, Coin Tengoku, and the infamous Mark MSX. <laughs> Here I am. Shoutouts to Dingo, too. He's uh, from my, well, he was from my Discord. He's a really cool guy. Yeah, and he's been uh, streaming different games, a uh, fair amount of shmups on Twitch. And uh, I don't see his uh, streams too often because sometimes. Uh, his streams conflict with mine, but he's been popping into my streams, and and I will sometimes pop into his streams, and so it's uh, it's good to be able to you know kind of help each other out and root each other on. Ah, uh, so <clears throat> uh, let's jump into talking about the game and kind of some of its development. Now, one thing I'll, I'll say is um, this is a doujin title, which means that it is essentially a independently developed game. So it's not from a major studio or anything like that. And in fact, this was developed by uh, a person under the pseudonym of Yotsubane. And it's a single guy uh, developing the lion's share of this game. And Mark, you've got some uh, some information here that you've added to our outline that sure. I think would be great to share. Yeah, I've noticed when a lot of people cover this, uh, not podcast, when people cover this game, you know, like a Super Bunny Hop or I think Total Biscuit covered it as well. I don't think a lot of them realize that the developer is a Japanese super player. His name is, at least when he does the scoreboards, is Clover Tack. And he's actually a world record holder in Dodonpachi. He uses CL. And if you want to check him out, he actually did a live demonstration of uh, SDOJ at Stunfest a few years ago. So this guy is pretty freaking legit. <laughs> yeah. And for, for the uninitiated or those who are uh, perhaps a bit less familiar with uh, uh, don't speak shmuppies, uh, <laughs> SDOJ is uh, actually shorthand for Dodonpachi Sai Daiojo. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, you, with the Dodonpachi series, you know, people call it DDP or things like that. And, of course, DOJ is Daiojo and SDOJ is Sai Daiojo and, and yeah. uh, DFK is Daifukatsu. And so... Yeah, uh, with uh, with uh, DOJ and SDOJ, I almost never say their actual names because I always mess them up because of my Japanese right. skills are very low. So I always just use the shorthand. Sure. Yeah, well, and, and the shorthand's... A lot faster anyway, because... Yeah, especially SDOJ. Oh my gosh, that's such a long title. Yeah. 
Well, especially when you factor in the the name of the series and then that particular entry. It's, yeah. Gets a little ridiculous. Although it's not as long as most of the Toho game titles. Oh, that's true. So, um, just briefly, Crimson Clover, from what I understand, is actually the first release from Yotsubane or Clovertack. And there was an early version of the game that was playable at Comiket 78. And Comiket is, from what I understand, a kind of a doujin software and uh, doujin manga and sort of comics convention that happens in Japan. And so small developers, indies, uh, people who are writing, you know, kind of fan fiction or fan manga or, or just original stuff that is not affiliated with or published by a, a larger studio can come and kind of show off their, their products and get feedback and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think one thing to keep in mind, too, about the Japanese doujin scene, at least at this time, I don't know how it is these days, but at the time Crimson Clover was being developed, it, they didn't really have a lot of like an equivalent to Steam, so to say. Nothing that major. So it it's not quite the same thing as how indie games are massive in the West. They're still pretty underground scene, at least when Crimson Clover is being made. Right. And so version 1.0 of the game came out then at the following Comicat, uh, Comicat 79 in 2011. And it had five stages for the different difficulty levels. And then the two-stage, uh, what's called a true last boss, or again, in shmup terminology, TLB, uh, is shorthand for that. And there were physical copies that were available at that time that I believe were available along with physical CD soundtrack copies at Comic at 90, uh, or 79, excuse me. And then potentially available through some small doujin online markets after that. Do you know what a uh, platform it was for? Was it just Windows, do you think? As far as I know, it was just for Windows. Right. Uh, and then a couple of years later, in 2013, the game was actually picked up for an arcade release on the Nessica Live platform, uh, which is interesting to think about because in my city here, within just the last few months, we got a big round one arcade and that uses the Nessica live platform for all of its non dedicated cabinet games. Uh, and so, you know, a dozen plus different fighting games there at the uh, arcade and at, at present time, two shmups Raiden four, which of course we never saw in the West in arcades mm -hmm. and Shikigami no Shiro two. So it's wild to me to think that this game, you know, developed by just one person, actually made it into Japanese arcades, and that it's on this platform that is now here, you know, relatively yeah. all over the United States. And so it's it's crazy to think that at some point, you know, that game could come into rotation at my arcade. <laughs> that would be really cool. I think, too, uh, another thing to point out is that when it comes to Japanese super players, such as Clover, as far as I understand it, they don't really, the way the Japanese verify scores for high scores and shmups, they don't allow home consoles or PCs or even home arcade units. You have to be, the score has to be achieved in an arcade. So that would make sense why Clover would want this game to be on the Nesca platform so that people, when they're achieving high scores, they could verify the scores in the Japanese 
way of doing it. Sure. That's a, you know, it makes you think of, of something like, uh, like twin galaxies here in the United States where, you know, the, the, the most lauded scores are achieved on an arcade cabinet in a legit arcade location with, uh, one or two people there to verify, um, uh-huh. yeah, makes me think of the King of Kong. Yeah, I was about to say that. <laughs> you know, uh, watching some, watching a guy over his shoulder and uh, all that pressure, you know, kind of on them while they're trying to achieve that score. It uh, r- rather than uh, you know some of us playing casually or or sitting on our couches streaming the game at home. You know, it's a uh, it's a different different environment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, of course, the game came to Steam in 2014, and uh, that the game was kind of retitled Crimson Clover World Ignition. Uh, it added replay support, and then there were some bug fixes. And currently, it's up to version 1.06, which is what we were playing uh, throughout the month of March. And there was something in the Wikipedia article that mentioned Western-style scoring. <laughs> And I wasn't sure what that meant, and I know you mentioned something about this. Yeah, I think that's one of those classic BS entries into Wikipedia where some guy thinks he really knows what he's talking about and enters. What I've never heard the term Western-style scoring in my life. I have no idea what that would mean. Huh. It doesn't sound good to me, though. Western-style scoring would be... I don't know. I honestly don't know what that's supposed to mean. Huh. Um, so then how would you classify the scoring in Crimson Clover, you know, just at a high level? I'd say it's very similar to a cave style game as far as the scoring system. I think it pretty obviously takes a lot of inspiration from cave games in that way. And cave games are Japanese, they're not Western, so... Right, that makes sense. Yeah, I think, do we talk about it here or maybe later on, like, the way it relates to other cave games? But yeah, I could definitely point that out as we go along. Yeah, that'd be great. So yeah, I mean, and I would say on the whole, the game draws a lot of inspiration from cave shooters. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Along with a couple mechanics from other games, uh, one of which we'll we'll point out along the way. So I guess let's jump right in and talk about the gameplay. It's actually quite simple on the surface because you have essentially a D-pad or a joystick that you move the ship around with. And then you have three buttons. You have a fire button, which is Mm -hmm. a rapid shot by default. uh, And what's called a wide shot uh, where, you know, when you're, when you're just shooting your weapon and moving around the screen, uh, you know, your weapon is kind of full out and shooting in whatever configuration is kind of the ship's default. Yeah. Your, your second button is the lock on button. And, you hold that button down to target enemies. And what happens is when you press that button down and hold it, you'll see a kind of blue line circle shoot out from your ship. And as that's happening and enemies come into the, the circle, you'll see little targeting reticles on all of them. And you can target, I want to say something like 24 enemies or 24 lock-ons that you can achieve in a in a full loadout and while you hold the lock-on button down your fire closes in and becomes a focus attack uh very similar to as you mentioned cave games like the dodonpachi series in particular Mm -hmm. um 
I mean, I've got the original Dampachi for Saturn that I've had for years, and that was one of the things that I noticed early on when playing it, is that, you know, you would have a certain spread to your fire pattern, but that's when you're tapping the button to shoot the, the, the cannon. But when you hold the button down, it focuses in your fire, and it becomes more of a laser. Well, here it becomes just a much more focused and narrow pathway of, of bullets and stuff that you're shooting out, or lasers or whatever the ship is that you're using. The other thing, though, is uh, a lot like the cave games, when you hold the lock-on button down, your ship slows down. And so whatever your default ship speed is, that slows way down when you've got the lock-on engaged. So it allows you to kind of move through bullet patterns and things like that. And um, not to get too far out on a tangent here, but I think we should mention, since we haven't talked about it already, um, most people, when they hear Cave, they already know we're talking about a bullet hell game or a Danmaku. Um, but that's that's what Crimson Clover, Clover is, essentially. is It is a bullet hell game. You know, there are lots of bullets on the screen, large patterns of bullets that are spread out or shot out from various enemies that you have to dodge and weave through. And so the hitbox of your ship is actually very small, and it's pretty obvious what it is when you're when you're playing the game. You can see kind of this glowing center area on the ship, and that's its vulnerability. And by the same token, some of the larger bullets in the game also have hitboxes, so that your ship and its hitbox or its its vulnerable area can sometimes come in contact with the outer edges of some of these bullets. Because mm-hmm. it, it may not be the entire bullet or laser or, you know, fireball or whatever that's that's coming at you that is destructive to your ship. And so there's a there's an art in some ways to, yeah. you know, learning how to dodge through these dense and complex bullet patterns, bullet curtains, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, it's almost like if uh, any of the listeners out there play fighting games and things like that. I play a lot of cave games and I've gone to where you can kind of tell what the hitbox is of the bullets based on its shape a lot of the time. So, like the larger just static balls that fly at you, they normally actually have a pretty small hitbox compared to their their on-screen sprite. The hitbox is not that big. But when you get bullets that kind of have funky shapes, they look like they're spinning in weird ways and they're like chunky, usually those types of bullets are almost completely hitbox. So, Another art is you can actually kind of tell what the hitbox is just based on the way the sprite looks a lot of the time. Oh, that's that's good to know and a good tip for uh, people as they begin to explore more games in the genre. But I guess getting back into uh, kind of just the basic functionality here. So yeah, with the lock-on, you can use that to lock onto these ships and then shoot out some kind of sub-weapon, either a laser or uh, in one case missiles, mm-hmm. and you can target enemies that way. And so it's a, it's a way, it's another way to target and take out enemies uh, that aren't necessarily directly in front of you. Now there have been games that have done this before. You know the the sort of ground placement targeting has been done in early games like Xevious or Dragon Spirit, things like that. But of course, Pop and Twin B. Sure, never played that one. Yeah. But that came into more prominence in the mid-90s with Rayforce, and especially in kind of the mid-to-late-90s with uh, Terra Diver, or Sukiyo Gurintai, which, very similar to Crimson Clover, 
you would use a button to essentially cast a field out from your ship. And in, in that game's case, it was more of like a sphere that sort of rotated around your ship and it's kind of this neat looking grid pattern. And when enemies would come into that sphere, you could target them and then take them out with a secondary laser. And so I kind of like to think of it like, uh, <laughs> like the death blossom from the last starfighter, uh, you know, waiting for all the enemies to come into range and then hit the button and target them all and, you know, take them out in, in rapid succession. Yeah. It's super satisfying. Yeah, it's a very cool mechanic and um, something that really adds a lot to the game, I think. Just another fun aspect of the way it affects level design is, like in Dodonpachi and a lot of uh, those style games, Danmaku games, it's always, a, it's always a huge problem if an enemy gets behind you because you have no way to attack it normally. You have your forward laser. Or... But since Crimson Clover allows you to get that field out, there are certain sections, I think level four or five, where the game decides, okay, I'm going to throw enemies at you from all directions. And since you're able to target them with the, the focus shot, it just adds a new element of being able to utilize different types of level design and stuff because you can attack things in all directions rather than just directly in front of you. Yeah, starting in uh, level four, I think there are some spa spaces where enemies come in from behind you. And specifically, later in stage five, there's a kind of a mid-boss that will uh, will come up behind you. Yeah, you gotta fight the mid-boss completely behind you. Yeah, entirely with lock-on shots. With a couple of exceptions, there are some strategies we can talk about with that. Now, one other benefit to the lock-on is that, and we'll, we'll talk about this more as we go along, but when you target enemies with the lock-on or you get those kinds of kills, you earn stars as like bonuses in the game. And when you're targeting enemies or you're doing things like that, sometimes the stars will fall down the screen. And if you're not in close proximity to pick them up, they'll fall off. Well, if you're holding the lockdown button down, those stars will be attracted to your ship. So that's one way to help scoop up those stars is to make sure that you're engaging the lock on, even when there aren't enough enemies to actually lock onto. Um, if you don't need the wide shot, it can be very helpful to keep that lock-on button held down in order to pull in all those stars so that you can maximize your, your bonus. And then there is the break button. Uh, now this is kind of a dual purpose thing. Um, you have a break meter, which kind of is on your screen. And as you destroy enemies, that meter will fill up. Now, there's the meter in its full size, and then there's a line partway up that meter that if you get past that line, you can hit the button and deploy a bomb. It's a screen-clearing bomb, so any popcorn enemies, any bullets on screen, anything like that will, will get destroyed, and then any boss or larger enemy will be heavily damaged by the bomb. However, if you fill the meter up completely and you press that button, you will go into what's called break mode. When you go into break mode, your main cannon will be more powerful. The shots will be larger. They'll sort of get this purple uh, look to them. And typically your shot range will be a little bit wider as well. And also your lock-ons will do more damage and be more powerful. Uh, break mode has a timer on it that will kind of count down pretty quickly 
and I didn't time it to see how long a break actually lasts, um, but you do a bunch of damage while you're in break mode, and anything that you kill during break mode will yield stars. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's a great way to earn those. Your ship becomes slightly more attractive to the stars as they're falling in break mode as well. Now, if you fill up your meter twice... Uh, because you have the ability to do that. Or if you fill up the meter and you then, while you're in break mode, are able to fill the meter a second time, you can activate double break mode. This makes your fire even wider and more powerful, and it becomes this sort of bright green shots coming out from your ship. But again, your lasers, your lock-on lasers do more damage. You get even more stars in double break mode and those stars become very attracted to your ship in that mode. So unless you've got stars falling on the right side of the screen and you're completely on the left side of the screen or vice versa, more than likely they're going to come at your ship uh, when you're in double break mode. So you will be, you'll be earning a lot of stars in double break mode if you, if you time it right. And we'll, we'll go into some of the strategies on this. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, right now, or do you want to do that later? Yeah. Well, one thing that there was one other thing I wanted to touch on with uh, with the lock on too that I that I forgot, and that is that um, since kind of tying into the break meter, getting lock on kills of enemies will actually fill up both your primary and secondary break meters, mm -hmm. and so that's a good way to you know if you can get a lot of of full lock on bursts, you can fill up both meters faster so that you can break more frequently. The other benefit to the lock-on is when you get lock-on kills, like I say you take a large enemy that shoots a big bullet pattern at you, and then you finish them off with a lock-on, not only do those bullets on screen get converted to stars, but then of course you get that benefit of a bullet cancellation essentially. That really helps to mitigate a lot of the bullet spam that you get on the screen. Addicted. Uh, Anything else that you want to add to uh, kind of the basic controls? Yeah, just talking real quick about the double break. The uh, <clears throat> It's nice that the bullets are destroyed. And I've been playing on and off a game called The Bullet Soul for the Xbox 360. And as far as a beginning Damaku game, that has worked really well to edge me into some of the higher modes in Crimson Clover. Because when you destroy... An enemy, all the bullets turn into little ghosts, and you're supposed to consume them in order to help fill up your score. It's sort of an interesting mechanic, but it's something that reminded me with the uh, double break. Yeah. And you want to be able to get it um, as quick as possible. I mean, the whole idea of a Damaku game is to, tr to try and point blank these things as quickly as possible so you can clear them off the screen so you, you can keep the chaos controlled. The other thing I should mention is, you know, I, I mentioned that if you if you release a bomb that clears out all the bullets on the screen, well, every time you do that, the line moves up further and further up the break meter. And so the more you use the bombs, the more enemies you have to kill in between them in order to get enough energy to use a bomb. But when you activate a break, all bullets get converted to stars. So you get the same benefit as the bomb by clearing the screen of bullets, but with the added benefit of, of course, getting all those stars that you can then collect, which then 
helps with uh, your scoring. And stars also act as your extend counter. Uh, you know, in most games, you earn extra lives strictly through score. But in Crimson Clover, uh, he changes it up a little bit, and it's by collecting stars. So you actually are incentivized to learn strategically how and where to break and how to milk enemies properly so that you can earn the most stars because that's how you get your extra lives. Yeah, and just to add on top of that, I would say a good way to think about it is the bomb is your panic, oh crap, I'm going to die button. If you're trying to route the game and just even clear it, the game actually learning the brake system, learning how to abuse the brake system is going to get you a lot further than just trying to use bombs as much as possible. And the bombs tend to also really destroy your score a lot. <laughs> if you're in a certain section where you should be breaking but you panic and bomb, you're going to lose out on a lot of points. Yeah, I found that 9 times out of 10 when I bombed, it was because either... I started my break too early and I didn't earn enough energy to double break and as I was just getting to where I could double break I would run out and I would throw a bomb instead because I I just missed it by a hair or because I miscalculated and thought I was on the path to reaching the double break counter that I needed in order to have enough energy to go into double break and I would hit the button too soon and throw a bomb and then take myself out of break mode. Um, but yeah, every once in a while I would get into a situation, especially in arcade difficulty where mm -hmm. the screen would just become so, so full of bullets or uh, I would get boxed in by a group of enemies or, or something like that, that I would kind of have that Oh crap moment. And, uh, bomb just to kind of clear that and you know clear the field and kind of start fresh <laughs> yeah that actually happened to me at the end of stage three in arcade mode where it's just i didn't have enough uh energy to break i was close but i didn't have quite enough and it was i was just getting pressed in and i had no more extends so i just had to bomb and then the funny thing is about that section of the games it's so intense it's like once you bomb once you're just going to get forced to bomb over and over basically because you can't you can't earn enough meter back enough to get the break. So sometimes that happens, and it's better to bomb than to die, but right. if you can, try to avoid it anyway. Yeah, th there's definitely a risk-reward kind of scenario in there, and I would say more often than not, it's more risk than reward for bombing. Yeah, definitely. I have a question for both of you. Based upon its arcade legacy, do you believe that you might have gotten a little bit better at Crimson Crawlover with a... Um, arcade stick versus a pad, or do you find the pad suited you just fine? I'll let you go first, bro. Um, you know, for me, I'm kind of at a, at a place where I want to learn stick, but I don't have any good arcade sticks, uh, and so pad is all I play right now. Uh, having said that, some of the techniques for weaving through bullet patterns and stuff like that and some of the especially after watching some replays you know i can see kind of how players almost guide some of the bullets because you know as mark was saying you know you route through a game or whatever and you kind of you know where to go during a certain stage in order to start attacking enemies and then as you're moving along you can you can direct enemy fire in some ways by kind of moving along a certain path and and 
um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, incentivizing the enemies to fire at you at a certain place or a certain time. Mm -hmm. And so as you're doing that, you're doing a lot of tap movements, you know, little, little tiny movements, left, 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 up, right, 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 down, you know, those kinds of things. And so those kinds of movements, I think are probably easier with a stick in the long run, just because of the precision that you can get from that. Because in the heat of the moment, you know, it's a lot easier to know that I'm, I'm moving my hand left or I'm moving my hand right rather than I'm pushing my thumb on this, you know, plus sign pad on the thing. And how do I really know how precise that control is? No matter how skilled I am at doing it, you know, there's still going to be a level of, of, uh, imprecision just with the, the nature of, of a D pad and how it works. So I feel like I've been doing pretty well, considering that I'm only playing with a pad. Uh, but certainly, getting into arcade sticks is what I would like to do. And I think if I was in that mode where playing with an arcade stick was more something that I was doing or doing well, uh, then I think I could probably I, I could probably perform better with it if I was practiced in that methodology. Yeah, for myself, I'm I'm definitely a stick player through and through. So. Like, I highly recommend anyone who wants to check out Stick. I think it's a really good way of playing shmups. Um, with that said, though, I do have to mention that there are some extremely talented pad players out there, like Jamers. He actually cleared arcade mode of this game, and I'm pretty sure he was using a Sega Saturn pad at the time. So, Wow. Yeah, so it's definitely possible to achieve really high-level scores and runs on pad. But I, I personally feel that Stick is more consistent. And you can just get finer levels of control more often because Crimson Clover is a good example of a game where it's a long, it's a long haul and it's a lot of really precise movements, a lot of tap dodging, a lot of circling around in different ways and stuff like that. So if all else, even though you can perform all that on a pad, I do feel like stick in the long run does end up being more consistent. But that's, that's just my opinion and it's definitely not impossible to get some insanely good runs on pad as jamers has proven so yeah and i know there are players who uh swear by the keyboard as well and yeah definitely play only keyboard now of course you can't do that in an arcade but when you're talking about a game like this or you know emulating shmups on mame or even some dojin games and and stuff on steam you know there are there are some talented players that only like to use a keyboard I would say of the Western players, most of them that are really talented seem to be playing on keyboard. I mean, it's actually a good mixture. Like, there's Jamers on pad. I think he's the only pad player I'm aware of. And then everyone else is either on stick or keyboard. Yeah, keyboard's legit, though. Hmm. There's some really good players who use keyboard. Wow. Yeah, I've seen some amazing stuff with Ketsui and the keyboard. Yeah, Pazzi's videos. He's destroying that game on keyboard, for example. I do have to give a shout out though. I recently picked up a Ape Do or Ape Do M30 controller and once plugged that in with a Genesis six button feel and a uh, Saturn D pad. Oh, that thing is really nice for playing Crimson Clover. Nice. Yeah. See, and I've been playing, I played all month with uh, the Ape Do SF30 Pro Pad. Um, and of course, on PC, uh, I bought their like a little 10 or 15 dollar uh receiver for the controller 
And it's meant to it's meant to work with either their controllers or it's designed for the Switch, so that you can use like a PS3 or PS4 controller, Xbox controller, or other Bluetooth controller on your Switch, uh, so it, you don't have to use just the Joy-Con or the Pro Pad or whatever. Right. And since it's compatible with their controller, I just plug that into the front of my PC in one of the USB ports, and then pair the pad with it, and uh, have been doing that. So. Now I know there have been some uh, there have been some discussions online lately about those new M30 pads that you were talking about, addicted, where the the Bluetooth version of those pads is laggier than the 2.4 gigahertz dedicated versions that either have a dongle with them or um, yeah, like the ones that connect to a dongle for example that plugs directly into a sega genesis controller port or directly into a super nintendo controller port um so i would have to say for using a bluetooth wireless pad uh i think i've performed relatively well all things considered <laughs> do they make a wired version of those controllers do you know it's just the wireless ones, but the two that they have, one is Bluetooth and the other one is RF. And it's our, oh. it's basically pre-programmed for a Genesis. And all you do is you just plug it into Windows and it detects it like an Xbox 360 controller. That would be interesting to see, yeah, because I have used Bluetooth controllers in the past with mixed results. Some being pretty good and then some being ultra laggy, I would say. So, yeah, it would be interesting to compare the, the RF version to the Bluetooth to see which would end up being more responsive. Yeah, there's a, a readout on that or a lag result on that on uh, RetroRGB.com if you're interested. Oh, cool. So what was the, the lag? What were the findings exactly? Uh, no, I'm just pulling this off the top of my head or uh, out from the bottom of my behind, whatever one <laughs> works here, but the... Ooh. But I think it was like 28 milliseconds or 30 milliseconds for the Bluetooth and like 7 or 8 for the uh, non-Bluetooth. Wow. So definitely go with the non-Bluetooth then. Well, if you're looking, if you're going to be looking for speed and responsiveness, 100%. Yeah. Because yeah. Uh, 30 milliseconds, that's like a frame. Yeah. Now, I will say that, I, and I don't know, this might just be me, but my... SF30 Pro felt pretty responsive while I was playing, and some of that may be because I'm using 8-bit DOS receiver with it. You know, I'm not just using any Bluetooth uh, yeah. card or receiver or whatever in my PC. I'm actually using their receiver, so that may have something to do with it. It may also have something to do with it that the PC sits, you know, six to seven feet in front of me in my living room on the floor, and that receiver is hanging right out of the front of it. And so I'm, you know, maximum eight feet away from this thing. Um, you know, not anywhere close to like the 30 feet or whatever that is the kind of max for a Bluetooth device. So yeah. I don't know if that'll make any difference or not, but... I think it might. Yeah, I felt like it was responsive enough. I found the actual results here. The uh, Bluetooth version of the M30, they pegged at 21 milliseconds. The uh, M30 2.4 gigahertz is at 3.6 wow. oh, milliseconds. That's much better. And then the Crix Joys, which is basically uh, the Crix, the creator of the EverDrive's controller, is depicted at 3 milliseconds. So the M32.4 gigahertz is definitely the one you want. Yeah, because if you're getting 21 MS, that's 
That's almost a frame and a half. That is a lot of lag. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. But three's not too bad, so yeah, I definitely go with that one. One one more thing that's uh, making me think I need to invest the money in a good stick. Yeah, definitely. There's some joysticks out there where the response time is ex- insanely good, so don't even have to worry about it. Hmm. And I remember that you use a green joystick, Mark. Is that your preferred? Yeah, I use the... Actually, I'm using two different ones now. I use the Fanta Taeyang, which is a little more hard to get a hold of. You have to order it from Korea. But there's also one that's a lot more accessible, the Crown. And I, the Crown, their names are always so hard because it's just letters and numbers. It's like the MJ something or other, but it's basically the one that can fit in a Japanese arcade stick. That one's really good, too. Cool. There you go. Get your Battle Garega and your arcade stick all in one. <laughs> there you go, yeah. Nice. Uh, so let's move on and, I guess, talk about the uh, the the weapon or the, the bonuses. Uh, there are no power-ups in the game. So the only way to power up your ship is to go into break mode or double break mode in order to make your your fire stronger but there are still things to collect so of course stars you collect as you destroy enemies and especially in break mode but after you defeat a mid boss or at the end of a level there's always this sort of uh circling grouping of of icons that you can collect similar to like Chorensha 68K, for example. And so you've got a, a choice between one of four possible icons that you can pick up. One of those will be a star token, which will give you a set amount of, of bonus stars to add to your total. Now, on the first, uh, first stage, the end boss of the first stage gives you a 10,000 star token. And as you go along in the game, those will climb in value uh, for later mid-bosses and end-bosses. There is an E icon, which is this big green circle with a big E on it, and that will add energy back to the brake meter, um, so that if you totally expend your brake meter on a boss fight, for example, you can use that to help get a leg up, so that you can then build that meter faster and brake sooner. There's the recover token, and so as I mentioned before, if you're bombing in the game, there's that line on the break meter that shows where you can bomb. Well, if you bomb consistently or you bomb a bunch of times and that line moves up to where you need more energy to, to bomb, grabbing the recover token will reset that back to the default so that you can bomb sooner. Uh, and then, of course, there's the one-up token. Now, in novice mode, you'll see that one-up token after i think most every boss fight as an option yep uh and so it's wise to pick those up in novice mode in arcade difficulty however i believe the only opportunities to get those are from mid bosses and i don't know what they are but i think there are certain conditions that you have to meet in order to trigger that i think there's a mercy one i think so because I remember on the stage three mid boss, every time I was down to just one extend, I seemed to be given mercy one ups. But if I had more than one extend, I wouldn't get the one up. That's what I think. I'm not 100% sure on that though. That that would make sense because as I was practicing the game on on arcade uh, difficulty, 
I found that if I was, as I was struggling to kind of learn the patterns and the routing and stuff for stage two, I found that if I could take out the stage two mid-boss, uh, or that when I would take out the stage two mid-boss on my last life, I would get the one up. And every time I was streaming this game, I was like, oh yes, please give me the one up. Uh, yeah. And then of course, most of the time I would get the one up and then almost immediately get sniped and, uh, you know, have it be for naught, but, uh, but at least it was a, a gesture there, since you say a, a mercy one up. Yeah, mercy one up. I do have to mention that I think it's funny. I don't know. Is it just me or does the recover item look like a wine glass? And like, it just, is that what it is? Like a martini glass or something? That's a good question. I always wondered like that recover. <laughs> it's a martini glass. That makes me laugh. Let me look. I'm just curious because I'm like... We know what Clover Tack's doing on his weekends, that's for sure. He's recovering <laughs> his martinis. <laughs> uh, hey, we have to keep it kid-friendly. It's Hawaiian Punch. That's right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, man. I have to say, that the jump and... Di just going from... The jump in difficulty from going from novice to arcade in this game... And then going from that to an unlimited mode. Holy smokes, unlimited mode. I know. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. Yeah, arcade mode is no joke. Even among bullet hell games, I would say it's one of the harder arcade modes I've played. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I definitely want to explore that uh, a little bit later when we talk about the different game modes here. But uh, first, Addicted, would you like to give us a rundown on the different ships? Sure. There are three main ships in Crimson Clover and a fourth that you can unlock. Type 1, the red type, has a slower top speed and average attack width. And when we're referring to attack width on here, if you anyone who's played Gradius or Gradius, you can pronounce it however you like, has, you basically have four options with your ship at any given time. The, we'll go into this a little bit more, but depending upon what ship you choose... Is depending upon how wide a range of your shots you have. So this the average attack width means it, you're going to be getting about oh, what would you say about 25 percent of the screen if you're in the middle of the screen. Something Probably like that around there, 20, 25 there. somewhere in there. All right, and then I'm uh, sorry, I want to say this is a average or 25 percent when not in your focus or your radar scan mode or your focus attack it has a lock on laser similar to the ray series ships as the secondary weapon it offers break and double break to further increase the width of its unfocused attack type a is a great all-around ship like type b in daifukatsu that's my ship i play type one i like type one in novice but in arcade mode it i just got wrecked really fast <laughs> <laughs> I just copy Jamers. He played Type 1, I played Type 1. <laughs> yeah, I, I started with Type 1 when I first started playing the game, and I kind of experimented around with the different ships. I think overall, Type 1 is a, is a good one to play with, but uh, I didn't stick with it, ultimately. Type 2 is the blue ship, which is faster than Type 1, and has options that follow your ship around. So, <clears throat> with this one on here... When you move, your options don't stay on the fixed width. They move along with your ship. So you could be getting tw that 25%, or you could get maybe 20%, or 15 or 10 depending upon where you're at. It's faster than Type 1, and 
So we talked about it's unfocused mode can vary depending upon how they're positioned or how you're moving. It's lock-on weapon is missiles, and there's a slightly longer delay between targeting enemies and them taking damage. I tried this a little bit, and it was sort of neat there, but I didn't really end up using this shit much. Did anybody else? Did you, Fro? Uh, yeah, I I used it some in the beginning when I was experimenting with it, but even in novice mode, and some of this could be because I, I used it some when we were playing early on, but wow... When uh, when I was using this ship, I was getting annihilated pretty quickly. Some of that might have been because of that slight delay with the lock-on, but uh, some of it was because since you have the kind of following options, I was trying to position them so that I could get a real wide berth with uh, the focus shot because I think you can have almost 50% of your screen width covered with that if you, if you do it right. But ultimately, it becomes cumbersome uh in that sense and so you really have to be very specific if you want to if you want to use yeah that it ship. sounds like i actually never played type 2 but it, i'd assume it's kind of one of those ships where it has a lot of potential but it's a really technical style ship where you got to know the level layouts really well and how to control those options probably you can't brute force yeah as well as you can with like type 1 probably that sounds about right looking at type 3 and this is the type type of ship that i used for most of my runs, it's the fastest ship. It, sorry, this is the yellow ship. It's the fastest ship and has the most narrowly focused, unfocused shot. Larger delay for lock-on weapon, which is a straight laser, from each of the fixed options. Break and double break is only slightly increased in an unfocused attack width. It's similar to the Panzer Jaeger from Ketsui. This one right here, I, I use, as I mentioned earlier, I used it for most of my runs. But it is possible where you're learning. If you go from a type 1 to a type 3, it's almost going to be a, like going from 25 miles per hour to 125. <laughs> you're going to be overshooting quite a bit. I spent a good portion of my gameplay with the type 3. Because once I, as I was experimenting with the ships, someone in uh, chat on my stream suggested the type 3 because it did more damage. Um, you know, because of course I was learning how to how to get through the levels, and I was playing mostly for survival. And so, for me, that actually was a good thing, because its its main shot and its uh, lock-on shot did more damage, and so I was able to take out enemies, and especially bosses, a little bit faster. Which, to me, from, from a strictly survival perspective, was a benefit. And so I, I played quite a bit with the, the Type 3. Did you have a little more trouble in the in the later levels with its speed? Was it a little too fast to get through some of those really dense sections? I never played Type 3, so I was curious. Um, yes and no. If th that That's kind of the point where I start going almost entirely focused attack and only letting up to shoot out uh, lock-on lasers or, you know, hold it down again to start that process and gather stars. Uh, and so that, that's one of the, actually how I kind of found out that, that, uh, holding down the lock on button, make sure that the stars are attracted to your ship because I was doing it almost constantly in order to make sure that I could successfully weave through the bullet patterns and stuff. But yeah, it's, it's weird because as the fastest ship, you know, there's a, there's a fair disparity between, your default uh -huh. speed and then the speed that you go in focus. And so you have to be careful and, and 
be really cognizant of what's around your ship and what hazards there are so that when you let up on the lock on button, if you're moving or you need to move that, you know, that your ship is going to move a whole lot faster, uh, in that unfocused default mode than when you've got lock on held down. So yeah, as I, as I played the game with, uh, with type three, I really spent most of my time in, in focus mode. Yeah, that makes sense. That's probably what they were intending you to do, I'd assume. Probably. Um, the last ship that we have is Type Z. Now, this one's a little weird because, not of, of its descriptive or anything, but no one can seem to agree on exactly what unlocks it. I've heard 1cc, I've heard 30 million stars gathered, I've heard, well, you get 30 million stars from doing a 1cc clear, and I've heard, just beat the game on original mode. <laughs> so... Have at it. But it, as far as the ship itself, it has the widest unfocused shot, lock-on lasers that are similar to Type 1, fast overall movement, and has the strongest main weapon in the game, can build the brake meter the fastest, and, well, it's overall the best ship in the game. Type Z could also be seen as easy mode. Hopefully, you know, not we're not talking devil engine easy mode here. <laughs> But easy mode in some ways because it's much more powerful than the other ships, which means it's also harder to use while playing strictly for score because you take enemies out so fast it's hard to get or milk the stars from them. This is one that I have very little experience with because I was playing Type 3 trying to make sure I master that as much as I could in my runs. I don't think I ever unlocked it. That's weird because I unlocked it when I was playing on novice mode and I either unlocked it during my playthrough where I reached the true last boss or I, 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 it must, it was, it was, it had to have been then because I didn't beat the game actually. So yeah. So, well, I guess I did because I credit, for oh, it, but I didn't okay. do it on a single credit. So I got to, I want to say I got to stage five and I reached the stage five end boss on a single credit. But then I died during the final boss and I was like, no, I'm not doing this all again just to see the end of this game. You know, I want to learn this pattern. So I put another credit in so that I could finish the, the, the fifth stage boss fight and at least, you know, see what it was going to do. So I could then the next time I went and did it legit, I would have a better idea of what I was going up against. And so I... I did as my second credit and I ended up beating that stage five boss. Well, then I triggered the true last boss and did another credit or two or whatever it was in order to beat it. And I got my first clear of the game, you know, not a one credit clear, but uh -huh. three or four credits, whatever it was. Well, then after that, when I went back in, I saw that the type Z was unlocked or somebody, I think in, even in chat who was watching said, Whoa, the type Z now. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to try this. And so I actually ended up spending the rest of my time throughout the course of the month playing with the type Z because, uh, as one of the people on chat pointed out, it's the most powerful ship. And so I was like, most powerful ship sounds great <laughs> to me because I can take stuff out more quickly uh and you know get rid of bullets on screen faster and hopefully get more uh more bang for my buck so to speak with the break mode and so for me from a from strictly a survival and learning the game and all of that the type z was a great fit because uh, i was able to 
do a whole lot more with the game. And so then it was either the next round that I played or the one after that with the type Z, I got my one credit clear uh, in, in novice on the original mode. Uh, and so to me, that was, uh, that was reason enough to continue to use the type Z then when I went into arcade difficulty. I'm thinking it must be, this is my guess that it must be clearing the game. It must not matter if you credit feed or not, because what ended up happening to me is the first think few days I decided to play on novice mode to get to know the stages a little better. And I had this run where I got to the true last boss on, a, you know, one credit. And then I literally was hitting bomb away from clearing him. A uh, bullet was coming towards me. The boss had like no health left. All I had to do was hit B and blow it up. And I missed And I missed huh. like I just barely mistimed it and died. So I died and the, the had the tiniest sliver of health left. And I could have just pressed oh. start and kept going. But I was like... I kind of just laughed it off. It's like, oh, whatever. I'll just try another run. And then uh, KZ posted a score of 1 trillion in novice mode. I was like, all right, I'm just going to play arcade mode. I don't feel like routing out novice mode for the next week and a half. <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably why I never unlocked Type Z. Yeah. From then on, I just played arcade mode. Yeah, it's really weird. No one's quite sure on exactly what unlocks it. Everyone seems to have their own theory. That's kind of fun, though. It is. There is a counter that's always shown on there, on or percentage on how close you are to unlocking it. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, mine kept going up to like 11, 12, and you're just watching the thing go slowly. You know, if you're used to watching Windows cop file copy progress bars, you'll be fine. You can just watch that thing go. Huh. Um, but the, my, I have to say, it's nice to see something where you're not... Uh, some sort of flying girl or flying woman. And I, I love the Steam review on here. It says, the best Damaku game if you've had enough of flying lollies. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine because, of course, there's like the older cave games like Ketsu and stuff where you're on in a chopper. But if you're just a Steam player, like you don't do emulation, you don't have the 360 or whatever. All your Dan Maku games are probably some form of Toho or involve little girls or whatever, so... <laughs> Except Crimson Clover, maybe. Yeah, I Dan mean, 3. you've got Death Smiles and Mushihima Same. Yes. And, and then you've got stuff like uh, Gundamonium or, like you said, Toho. And uh, what are those? There's like a series of three games from, uh, from one developer that... Uh, it's, I don't remember what they're called. Anyway, yeah, there's a whole bunch that are like that, that are, that are, uh, you know, kind of the anime girl shoot 'em up trope. And, uh, you know, the, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that inherently. It's just, I think the doujin market, especially, or the indie market, kind of got flooded with those over the past few years. Yeah. I actually did an episode on this not too long ago, and I feel like my personal opinion on it is. Yeah, I don't really have a huge problem with it per se, other than the fact that it gets, to me, it's feeling really stale. Where, okay, I'm just playing as another flying girl in this game. Like, if they want to do the <laughs> fantasy thing, I was thinking they should mix it up a little bit. Have me play as like a flying panda or like just some more variation other than the same thing over and over. That's my opinion anyway. Sure. Flight of the Pigarus, <laughs> although that's not Damaku. <laughs> yeah. Well, so dovetailing on something that you said, because uh, you mentioned that counter to unlock the Type-Z, I never saw that, but that's because 
I was playing in Tate mode, you know, I had the ability to orient my computer monitor vertical. Uh, you know, most of the time in my streaming setup, I've got my OBS software on my PC monitor and then the game that I'm playing on my TV. But since this game supported a true Tate or vertical uh, orientation, I actually rotated my monitor to, to do that. And then I played in that vertical mode the whole month and then ran my OBS and all the other stuff on my TV. Uh, and so I had the minimal heads up display with just score and break meter and uh, one up counter and all that stuff. And so I didn't get to see the trophies or any of that stuff throughout the course of the month. I mean, either I play rotated as well. I would have liked to, but I recently killed the ability for me to do that by setting up a four monitor station. That's sick. Well, thanks. I, I was hopefully so that way I could watch a stream at once, and then I could have. I had um, uh, Muchi Muchi Pork in one screen, and uh, Ketsui on another, and then I had a stream on one, and then I had a Devil Engine on another. Maybe you should think about a five monitor one, <laughs> and then the fifth one is a, a rotated. Oh, come on, five monitors. <laughs> I know. What I what people have been showing me in. Um, people have been showing me this way. It's like, all right, so you get this, and you can mount your 56-inch plasma sideways in Tate mode. And I've been looking at those, and, oh, it's a sickness. That is awesome. I'm actually right now sitting next to a big uh, Sony Trinitron. I think it's 36 inches, and it's laying on its side, rotated. <laughs> and it's a CRT, too, so it's pretty huge. Oh, wow. you that's great for some riding. Yeah, definitely. Oh, man. Yeah, you guys going to say you get you get a fifth or a sixth monitor in there and uh, you'll be liable to to get yourself trapped in shmupception. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, that's going to make its way in just like uh, going full shmup. Yeah. They're the Mohawk of power from uh, Thunder Force 4. Yep. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I can't wait to hear what you're going to have to say about Moochie Moochie Pork. Huh. That game has some interesting moments, but geez, I love that game. Not not quite my top though. We'll, we'll go into probably a top twenty-five schmuck podcast. We'll rip off this place I've been hearing about the Electric Underground. <laughs> yeah, seems pretty good. I heard that yeah, guy's we'll, pretty good. I heard he's pretty good too. <laughs> I heard he's a pretentious jerk a lot of the time, but he's pretty cool if you get to know him. That's what I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. He says anybody who doesn't play DOJ, whatever that is, is a, doesn't know shmups. I don't know. Pretty much, is, I've heard him say that if you don't play DOJ, you're just a scrub. I've heard him say that. And I've tried <laughs> to talk to him about saying that stuff on the air. If he doesn't listen. <laughs> yeah, he, he'd probably be disappointed to know that my, my copy of DOJ sits here uh, unused. That's okay. Mine does too. <laughs> I just emulate it. I don't even play my copy. <laughs> Uh, well, at least you own a copy, so that there's that. Yeah, that's true. And if you guys do uh, buy DOJ, in all seriousness, do not buy the 360 version. Buy the PS2 version. Oh, because, that's interesting. Yeah, because the 360 version is just inferior. Even though it has black label, I guess if you want black label, get the 360. But it's way more expensive, and the PS2 version is better. So, Huh. That's, that's weird to think about. Yeah, the 360 version of uh, people out there who didn't listen they basically 5b who ported it they just stole the code from the ps2 version 
but then they did a really bad job trying to implement it into the 360, so it's kind of a hot mess. Huh. Interesting. Speaking of games and different modes with Black Label, White Label, we have a, several different modes in Crimson Clover. We have the original mode, which is the primary or main mode. It encompasses five stages and the last true boss, or uh, TLB, if you reach the end of the game and beat the stage five boss. The, this mode is available in both the novice and arcade difficulties. We also have the boost mode. In boost mode, you build the brake meter until it's full, then automatically go into brake mode. There's no double brake here, but you can bomb and get out of brake mode. Enemy bullets and firing patterns change from original mode, so it's a different type of challenge. Also, when your ship is in brake mode, the enemy bullets will come both greater in number and also faster. When the brake meter fills up, while braking, this increases the intensity of the enemy attacks even further, upping the challenge. Scoring is considerably lower in boost mode than the original or ultimate, so rather than scores in the mid of high billions, or even trillions, you may top out in the low billions. Yeah. Uh, boost mode, I had some fun with that, but uh, that gets pretty intense, because, like a, like you say there, when, uh, when you're braking... Enemy attacks get more intense, but when your meter fills up again, uh, as if you could double break, but you can't, everything comes at you even faster, and they just throw more and more and more at you. Uh, by way of example, in the first stage, there are these um, metal pod things that come out from the top of the screen, and they're this just sort of these large metal shapes that come out well then they can open up to reveal the actual ship inside and that's when they're vulnerable and so when you're first playing before you break they'll shoot out a couple of little shots or whatever when they open up once you've are in break mode they'll shoot out more at you and then once you've filled up your meter in break mode, then they'll shoot a targeted sort of ring of bullets at you. And I mean, they'll fire straight at you and <laughs> wherever you're at. So you find yourself having to change positions and move around the screen more frequently in boost mode when you have a full break meter because the enemy attacks just get that much more egregious, I'll say. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of implementing a rank system, but in a super, yeah. super ramped up fashion, basically. Right. And and the, the, I like the fact that it is very specific like that because it's easy to keep track of. You know, I don't have to do any math in my head yeah. or think about, you know, like in, in Garega or something, how many how many medals have I collected, yeah. what power level is my ship, etc. I don't have to keep track of any of that. I know when I'm breaking enemies are going to attack more uh, effectively, and I know when I fill up that brake meter a second time, enemies are going to come at me even harder. And so it's that nice, easy, simple correlation that you can make. Uh, and so that can sometimes even help inform, you know, where and when you do that. Right. Uh, so that in some cases, you may want to be either more aggressive or less aggressive so that you're either filling your meter up faster or not filling your meter up as fast in order to make sure that that you're avoiding certain enemy patterns that get 
more aggressive in that break mode with full meter. Yeah. I, I think it's fun, that type of gameplay from time to time, because you can think of some kind of odd strategies that you normally wouldn't do in a shmup. For instance, I remember when I was doing some survival clears of DOJ, when I was first playing it, I decided I was going to try and manipulate the rank system. So I would just start bombing random places and stuff to drop the rank, even though I didn't necessarily need to bomb, or I'd, I'd try to avoid hyper metals and stuff, so... Mm. Yeah, I think... You can do that sort of thing in boost mode, too. Yeah, I found that I could... Because the boost mode often had a lot of larger bullets in smaller quantities, at least early on, than even in uh, original mode, I found that there were times, because a lot of these bullets are, are, are much larger in size, that I could zip around the screen more and you know weave in and out of bullets in boost mode in a manner that you might in a more classic game like Twin Cobra or something like that versus a more, you know, slight movement to the left or right or, you know, dodge a little bit here mm -hmm. or there or whatever. I could zip around the screen a little bit more, I won't say recklessly, but a little bit more freely like you might in a classic shoot 'em up and and since that's kind of my bread and butter, you know, the the games I've been playing for years, it's kind of nice to see that there's an element of that in a game like this through boost mode. And so it kind of helps to scratch that itch a little bit. Yeah, definitely. All right. So moving on, we have ultimate or ultimate mode. Now, this is the hard mode in the game and is the ultimate challenge. Enemies fire mobile, more bullets at you and also fire revenge bullets when destroyed, leaving far more for you to weave through or try to eliminate with your bullet cancellation mechanic or through a bomb or a break. Only available in arcade difficulty, this challenge will challenge even the most seasoned veterans. Yeah, this is... I, I jokingly call this welcome to die mode. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> really, really hard. And I made it through probably about a little half past halfway on stage one and was just like, all right. Is the little halves that you mentioned earlier that are giving me Xanic flashbacks now that that open <laughs> up those things. So you're expecting them to just fire off a couple, but nope. They fire off bullets, they fire off homing bullets, and they fire <laughs> off lasers. It's like free. Uh. Yeah, they, sh they shoot these huge blue lasers out. And I mean, these are some of the first enemies that you encounter in the very first stage. So... When I when I first messed around with ultimate mode here toward the end of the end of the month, uh, I had several holy crap moments <laughs> uh, in in playing that. And of course, you know, there's a there's a difficulty spike when going from novice to arcade, uh, and it's it's somewhat sharp. I mean, I definitely noticed that enemies shot a lot more bullets, and that I could get away with a lot less point blanking or I had to be more specific with it know when enemies were coming and um, plan my my route a little bit better but with but going from arcade to ultimate it's pretty it's a pretty sharp increase in the number of bullets that you have to to deal with and just the aggressive nature of the attack patterns yeah definitely not for the faint of heart that's for sure yeah and I think I think it even says that on the screen when you when you pick that mode, something to that effect, not for the faint of heart. Yeah. Or not for the squeamish or something like that. 
I like the, if you play the PS2 port of DOJ, there's, I can't remember, Death Label. And when you go to fire up Death Label, uh, like a caution screen comes up. Are you sure you want to play this? Are you positive? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they should add that into Ultimate. Whoa, wait a minute here. You sure you, you hit the right button, buddy? <laughs> yeah, do you even shmup, bro? Are you mad enough for this? Alright, next uh, area we have Time Attack, or Caravan Mode. Time Attack Mode has its own single, sim, single stage that throws a lot of enemies at you. You have unlimited lives, and you have a set amount of time. I believe it's, it's in a minute 30 that you have to clear it with. Uh, I See, I don't remember, I don't and I, I feel bad because I didn't look to see uh, what the time limit was in Time Attack. But I had a lot of fun with Time Attack. You know, it got a little bit frustrating once I kind of started to learn the stage and figure out how to route it, and I was trying to kind of determine when the best times were to break, uh, you know, when there were tons of enemies so I could get maximum benefit and, and do my best score-wise, but it's a pretty pretty fun little mode. I know it's really popular. I've heard a lot of people talk about how much they enjoy time attack mode. Yeah, and it's one of those things, I mean, like in, like any time attack or caravan mode in a game... You know, you got a few minutes to game rather than trying to, you know, let's reroute stage one for the hundredth time, uh -huh. you know, fire up time attack mode and bang out, you know, a half dozen rounds and you got 10, 15 minutes in and, you know, you kind of, like I said, you, you scratch that itch a little bit and you can put it back up and, you know, move on to the next thing. But it's a, it's a fun little challenge. Yeah, I think more shmups should include a time attack mode. This type of thing where it's basically just, yeah, go crazy for a set amount of time rather than having to worry about survival and all that. I think it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, this would be something that, you know, I, I, this is probably cliche at this point, but I would love to have this on the Switch and to be able to just to pop, pop out the Switch, put it in the flip grip and play for about five or ten minutes. Yeah, I think that'd be perfect. Yeah, that'd be cool. Let's move into scoring. Now, I can't be too specific about the scoring, Mark. I'm hoping that you'll be able to help. But I pulled a few notes from the uh, the kind of brief scoring and strategy guide that Bananamatic posted on the Shmups forums. And uh, I may link to that post in the podcast on the podcast page just because it has some really good detail and... Uh, little bit more information than we're going to be able to dive into in this format sure i think we should also mention that if you buy crimson clover on steam there's an option to buy this full-on scoring guide with the game which i think is a really cool addition true yeah yeah so thank you for mentioning that it's not one of those indie shmups i've talked about this a few times where there's so many shmups that i really love but it's really hard to find score information on them crimson clover is not that way you can find that information it's right there so it's also cheap as, well, I can say it here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very inexpensive on, on Steam. But of course, I didn't have to buy a copy. No, you didn't. Because Why not? There was, there was <laughs> someone who was very generous in gifting me a copy. Hmm, who might that have been? Well, to go back in history a little bit, if people probably don't know this already, you were an early guest on my podcast, one of the very first. and. Yeah. I was feeling extra generous last summer, so and there was a Steam sale on Crimson Clover, and so I bought, I can't remember, like five or six copies of Crimson Clover to Steam gift people, 
And you'd be surprised how hard it is to move free copies of shmups on the internet. I mean, people are like, hmm. <laughs> I was like, I'm trying to give you a copy of this game for free. And we ended up doing a little bit of a raffle, and yep, you won one. So that was really cool. And now yeah. it comes full circle where I come on your podcast to talk about it. That's right. <laughs> He's going to be expecting a shmup. <laughs> yeah, when's your giveaway? Oh, well, we'll have to figure that out. I, I'd like to do one, but uh, yeah, we'll have to figure something out. I'm just kidding. You don't have to do a giveaway. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it, it's something I want to do, but uh, I just haven't put a lot of thought into it, to be honest. He's going to give me everybody copies from 1942. Nah. <laughs> there we go. We'll pool our money together and, together and buy, buy every copy, every NES copy of 1942 in a five-state area and then <laughs> uh, send them out to everybody so that they can, uh, uh, you know, have that, that ear-piercing uh, whistle music. Oh, bad memories. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Okay, so scoring. My understanding from reading Bananamatic's post is that the score multiplier is determined by your lock-on. Mm -hmm. And so when you're locking on, the, the number of enemies that you lock on to and then fire at determines a multiplier percentage or a multiplier uh, times kind of thing. And if you get a full lock-on with the... Uh, or a full deployment of lock-on weapons uh, where you let it charge up and lock on to as many as you can do, Yeah. then you get a, a 9.6 times a multiplier, and that's the maximum when you're just n in normal combat. That's right. When you get into break mode, your meter, your, your lock-on grows a little bit so that you can get a max of 11.2 times multiplier, mm -hmm. and then in double break, that jumps to 12.8. Now, one thing that we didn't mention before about the lock-on is during normal play, the lock-on takes a little bit to charge up. You know, it's not very long, but it's... It can feel you know, that way. Yeah, in the, heat of the, in the heat of combat, it feels like it might take four or five seconds to, to fully lock onto an enemy or, or a group of enemies or, you know, lock on several times to a larger enemy or a mid-boss or whatever. In, in reality, it doesn't take that long. But in break mode, and especially double break mode, they charge up way faster. Mm -hmm. So that's another way that you can use and abuse the break mode and the lock-ons in conjunction to really take out enemies fast. Because between, between switching back and forth between wide shot and then focus shot with lock-on... You know, you can you can take out a lot of enemies very quickly, and especially since getting lock-on kills on larger enemies and things is what allows you to have that bullet cancellation effect, and then converting that to stars, that is a huge benefit. Yeah. I think we should also mention when you get the multiplier, there's a little timer that appears underneath the multiplier that shows you how long it lasts. So it's not... It's more like Ketsui in that way. It's not like chaining games where you, you chain together the combos. That's not how it works. You get the multiplier, kill as much stuff as you can, and then try to get refresh your multiplier about at the time it ends. So Yeah, and, and he was saying something in there about uh, 
if you get the 11.2 or the 12.8 times multiplier during break mode, you can sustain that yeah. after break mode is over with with continuous kills. But of course, like you yes. say, after the timer's done, then then you have to build that back up again. Yeah. And that's important for rebuilding your break meter again uh, so that you can go back into break mode as quickly as possible. And that's, I guess, the next point I wanted to make is, you know, you, he you hear something, uh, if, you, if you've ever worked in sales or you ever hear people talk about being in sales, they talk about, you know, one of the, one of the key, chief rules of sales is something like ABC, always be closing, you know, close the sale. Well, here it's like ABB, always be breaking. Did Bananamatic write that? No, that's kind of my, oh. <laughs> my uh, that's sort of my own spin that I'm putting on it. But there, there are obviously, for, for scoring, there are key times during a level when you want to break in order to maximize your ability to do that. But watching some runs of the game by highly skilled players, like Jamers, for example, you mentioned earlier, I watched a run that he did of the game on arcade difficulty in normal mode and he used every method that would build the break meter as quickly as possible so that he could break very frequently yeah. now he didn't he didn't always break every time the meter was always filled up because of course like i said there are times when there are more enemies thrown at you or targets that will yield more stars and more points and so you want to use those but realistically you want to fill your meter as quickly as you can and you want to break as frequently as you can on average in order to a cut down stuff faster so you don't have to deal with those patterns b earn more stars so that you can get closer to your next extend and c just overall you know try to up your score yeah and what's cool is well i guess we should clarify something is that so I tried, when I was first uh, doing my runs, I tried some different strategies of what would be more optimal. And so one thing I did try and do was literally break every single time I could. So as, as soon as I got the break, I would just break. And I did that every time. That's actually a lot less efficient or a lot less effective than going for double breaks. Double breaks are way more valuable than single breaks. So what I ended up doing is you kind of want to build up the meter and then you have to learn the stages a little bit to really take full advantage of this. But then you want to break at points where you know you'll be able to, during your break, get the double break. Because once you get the double break, not only does your multiplier you know, go way higher and you get way more stars, but you actually can carry that multiplier after your break ends for a little while. Like you can still have 12.8 after your break ends for, I don't know, like 30 seconds or something. Right, and, and that's what I started to do toward the end of the month as I was beginning to play through arcade mode, I was trying to learn where the best places to break and then double break were in terms of, like you said, you know, build up a break meter and then fill up your second meter at least part way to where yeah. I could I could break and then take out some more enemies and maybe some larger enemies enough to where as I was getting down to the last little bit of my break that I would earn enough meter to double break so that I could sustain that longer and then again milk the, all those enemies for more stars and uh, you know kind of get the maximum benefit from that yeah and so that that, that was one of the strategies I was trying to kind of come to grips with toward the end of the month 
Yeah, and I think that makes the most sense because like, yeah, like you're saying, you basically want to be breaking at all times, but you have to set it up in a way that you're also getting those double breaks. That way you can quite literally be almost breaking all the time because then you'll yeah. be able to carry the multiplier after the double break to get another single break earlier. So exactly. Yeah, it's like a really cool dynamics scoring system with that. Yeah, and and, and to kind of continue on that line of thought, point blanking and then full lock-ons are the the fastest way yeah. to build your brake meter. And so one of the things that I noticed um, that someone suggested to me early on, and that I also saw in some of the playthroughs that I watch is especially right there in the first stage, get up to the front of the screen and take out those enemies the second they come on. And then when those silver pod enemies come on, before they open up, you can just sit there in their face and just absolutely spam them with focus shot or even lock-ons before they open up to help build your meter. Then once they open up, if you can kind of stay alongside them, but not shoot them in the face, so to speak... Uh, you can continue to build meter just by kind of shooting at the sort of outer shell that they have and then finish them off with a lock-on kill to, again, build that secondary meter somewhat. And, and, and so that was a strategy I was using early on to try and build that break meter up earlier in the stage so that in that first stage, I could double break about a third or so of the way through. Yeah. And then w when you get that rush of tanks and pods, you know, get in their face and, and do as much close up combat as you can. And then lock ons so that you can build that up again. So that then when that's done and then you get that huge rush of popcorn enemies that comes down, you can break again and then hopefully earn enough to double meter yeah. to double break to then take out the other pods and the large sort of spike enemies and all that stuff. Um, so that right before you get to that kind of gauntlet of, of cannons and turrets there, as you're kind of moving into the last say third of the stage or whatever, you know, then you can build meter back up again so that by the time you get to the boss, you've got at least a full meter and maybe part of a second break meter full so that you can then go in and double break on the boss after, you know, filling your meter up a little bit and really, you know, milk it for as many stars as you can. Yeah, definitely. That's what I did as well. And I think a cool thing to point out about the way the braking system works is that since the game wants you to get your multiplier up by using full lock-ons, there comes an interesting dynamic between survival and scoring where you have to... There are certain sections, especially in the later stages, where... You basically have to just let enemies pile up on the screen as you're charging up your lock-on. Because if you shoot them with your rapid shot or your wide shot and kill them, you're actually wasting them where you could be getting the full lock-ons. So there comes lots of points where you're just flying around, hoping you know, hoping to survive while your lock-on charges. And then you fire the lock-on, get the multiplier, and then kill everything as fast as possible with your wide shot. And that's kind of the strategy I used a lot. Yeah, and that brings kind of full circle to something I mentioned earlier where, you know, I talk about kind of directing enemy fire. You know, if you're if you're letting enemies pile up on the screen as they're firing at you and you're kind of inching your way over to one side of the screen or another uh, so that you can avoid the kind of the mass of bullets coming at you, you know, that's a that's a way that you can use that to kind of 
move out of the line of enemy fire. Uh, and of course, you have to you have to practice it and route it so that you know when and where to do this. Yeah. But you know, I, I was watching Jamers do that in one of his playthroughs on stage three at the beginning, where you have these huge group of enemies that flies in on the screen, and he immediately targets them all and gets a big full lock-on blast. And then yeah. as he's about halfway across the screen and itching over, you know, he's getting a second. He's he's setting up a second full log on lock-on blast in order to build meter that much faster. Uh, and so it's really, it really is a cool technique that you can use, but yeah, it is very much is a, uh, kind of a push pull between survival and scoring where, you know, if you're playing strictly for survival blast away, understand where you need to be in order to avoid, uh, getting boxed in or, or whatever. Uh, but then if you're playing for score and trying to maximize your break and all that stuff, then yeah, you have to be a, a little bit more cognizant of what is around you and understand that in some situations like that, you're going to have to let enemies fly onto the screen untouched so that you can take them out with a lock on and hope that, you know, you calculate your, your trajectory and your movement enough to be able to make it work. Yeah. And I think the level design's pretty clever at times because like after the stage two mid boss, you could tell Clover, you know, the designer was thinking, oh, you think you're going to just hold lock on on this next group of enemies? No way. And it has, you'll notice there's like those kamikaze popcorn that will fly in and ram you if you don't shoot. So, yep. yeah. So that's a really clever part of the level design where the game forces you to strategically choose when you charge it. Because sometimes, even if you want to try and do that, you'll get blasted by these kamikaze popcorn who will ram you. So... Sometimes you're forced to shoot even when you don't want to because of that. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting way of of changing it up to keep it fresh, but also subverting expectations a little bit because yeah. you can't just blast all the time or just lock on all the time in order to play through the game. You know, I'm sure there's some there's probably some mad genius out there who will figure out a way to to uh, lock on through the whole game except for those those popcorn sections. Uh, you know, in the same way that that uh, someone figured out how to how to do Giga Wing with no reflect, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean, there's probably you know someone will probably figure out how to do it eventually, but ideally, you want that you want that push and pull, you know that that ability to utilize both and find ways to do it effectively. Yeah, and speaking of scoring and survival, I think we should also mention that. This is one of those games where playing for score can actually really help you for playing for survival for two reasons. First one is you're going to gain a lot more firepower by having more breaks available. Yep. For instance, when I first played this game a few months ago, I'd say like six months ago, I wasn't playing it for score at all. I was just playing strictly for survival, and so I was ignoring a lot of the scoring elements. I was actually a lot harder to survive because I wasn't getting enough breaks because I was just blasting everything. So this is one of those games where even if you want to just get a 1cc, it's worthwhile looking to the score for the breaks, and also because the extends, you get more extends with the more points you get. Right, well, with the stars. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, when you're double breaking, I think this game's pretty famous for it. The screen literally becomes like a pile of stars just flying at you. You get so much more than you would if you don't, so... Yeah, it's it's really visually impressive to <laughs> to see this giant wave of green bullets exiting your ship 
all the while all these gold stars are funneling down the screen at high speed into your ship like your ship is a vacuum sucking up all these stars uh it's it's pretty cool yeah i remember when i first saw the gameplay of the game long before i ever played it i was like what is this madness this looks completely ridiculous <laughs> i was like this game looks nuts yeah, there there are people watching on my streams that were were commenting on how do you even keep track of all of this? And I said, well, when you're breaking like this, you don't really have to keep track of much, you know, other than watching for the occasional stray bullet or knowing, yeah. you know, if you need to move left or right or or whatever in order to make sure that you're hitting all the enemies. But yeah, when you're when you're breaking, typically you're keeping track of less enemy fire on the screen because you've eliminated a bunch of it yeah and and you're starting fresh but then you're you're so powerful that you can kind of move around not necessarily with impunity but but you definitely have a lot more a lot more ability to move around and and create chaos than uh, than in when you're not breaking when I break when I double break I literally just look at the space in front of my ship and it's like, okay, is there any straight bullet that's going to hit me? That's all I do. Yeah. Because <laughs> you can just vacuum up the whole screen. Oh, yeah. It's it's pretty fantastic. But, you know, breaking and especially double breaking yields all of these stars. And, of course, you get points for collecting those stars and for killing the enemies at the time it happens. But then at the end of the level, you get a bonus for the number of stars that you get. And so there, there are several bonuses that you get um, mm-hmm. there at the end of the level. Um, but the star bonus is interesting because you get a bonus for the number of stars that you've collected during the level. And then you get a secondary bonus for the total number of stars that you've collected during the course of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as you go further and further in the game, especially because the number of stars that you have the potential to earn goes up every level, you get that cumulative effect where that bonus just gets bigger and bigger and bigger at the end of every level. And so it's kind of an interesting way that the score ramps up. Yeah, it is. From level to level. Yeah, and there's also a no-miss bonus at the end of every stage, too. Yes, and... The no miss basically just means that you get through the level without losing a life. Yep. Uh, I'm not sure what what the no miss, uh, where that nomenclature comes from. I'm assuming it's a Japanese origin. Yeah, I think it's some English right there. Okay, because you know when I when I hear a term like no miss, I think, oh, did that mean that I killed every enemy and I didn't miss any? Right. Uh, you know, that's kind of the first thing that I think of. But you know, in in shmup terms, no miss means you didn't lose a life during the course of a level uh, or during the course of a game if you if you do a full game no miss yeah otherwise known in some circles as a one life clear there you go but yeah like in the first stage if you get through that first stage without losing a life you get a 10 billion point bonus in original mode and i think also in ultimate mode and then in stage two that becomes a 20 billion point bonus and it keeps going up from there. And so again, you get that cumulative effect that if you can get through each successive level without dying, that bonus just becomes higher and higher. And so it really is an interesting and cool way to kind of incentivize the player to get better at the game because then their scores just keep becoming more insane. Yeah, it's definitely in that cave style of don't die, don't you dare die, where... 
Yeah, it's not like Garega where dying is a, be part of the scoring system. It's more a cave style where you don't ever want to die. Right. And, and you mentioned earlier that bombing is not something that you want to do because ultimately it hurts you. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that there are some games historically that, from a rank perspective, can be real punitive, uh, either when you bomb or because you're not bombing. Uh, you know, in some yes. games, if you bomb, it throws your rank or it does something to screw up your multiplier or whatever, and so you don't want to bomb. There are other games where if you don't bomb, the game is going to keep getting harder and harder and harder until, you know, you're ready to throw your controller against the wall. <laughs> and so there are games like that where it's a little bit more punitive. In this game, I feel like it's almost a more of a a way to ease you into that. Right. To you you learn organically through the course of playing the game that, you know, it's better if I don't bomb because then I can do this break thing, which looks amazing while I'm doing it. Plus I get all these stars and I get to take out all these enemies and then, whoa, there's this double break thing. And then that's even cooler. And then I get to the end of the level and then I get all these extra stars and wait a minute, I just earned an extra life because of stars. And so you learn as you play through the game that, uh, that bombing is, is not something that you want to do. That's a last resort. Uh, and so it, it encourages you kind of more gently to learn the systems in the game and, and learn how to play it properly rather than just, you know, spamming the bomb button. Yeah. yeah. I would say that double breaking turns the game into a giant pinata. <laughs> I would say so. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good description for sure. I was watching somebody do, I don't know the person's name, but they were doing an arcade run with Type Z, and the amount of stars that were flowing on that screen is, they were kept getting no um, one life bonus, or one life bonus constantly, and then the stars just kept getting bigger and bigger, and then the explosion of stars. Incredible to see. I love how uh, visually dynamic the game is. It's exciting. One thing I also can mention about the bombing system is there are some shoot 'em up games like Dodonpachi where for scoring after you hit bomb might as well just turn off the game because you just killed all your score the good thing about as far as like the more average scoring runs and stuff you can bomb in crimson clover and it's like oh you shouldn't do that but it's not it's not a game ender like it is in some other shmups so that's nice yeah well speaking of uh Speaking of visually dynamic, that's a nice segue to get us into talking about the graphics a little bit. I really feel like the graphics are very bright and colorful. Mm-hmm. The the sprites are detailed and there are some nice animations. I really appreciate the fact that the bullets are very distinct, very colorful, very bright, and very easy to see. Yes. Um, so that you can you know that there are these purple things coming at you and these are bullets. There are these blue things coming at you. Those are lasers. You know, there are these red things coming at you. Those are funky bullets that have weird shapes. And, uh, you know, every, everything that the enemies throw at you is obviously a bullet. It's obviously a laser. It's obviously a projectile that is designed to, to, um, you know, bring you white hot electric death so it's good to know that when you're playing a game like this everything that is hostile to you is distinctive and easy to see yeah i think another good thing about the bullet design in the game is 
a lot of games use the cave style bullets, you know, the pink and blue, we all know those. This game uh -huh. does too, but it also, it makes its own take on them, right? It's not actually the exact same bullets, even though they function pretty right. similarly. And I like some of the designs on this one, like the red spinning orbs and stuff. I thought those were pretty cool. Or the more, I can't remember, they're like the star looking bullets that come at you. Yep. Or like uh, the stage two uh, spider boss yeah. has these funky two-tone purple orbs that come out at you. Yeah. Or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, I think the bullets in this game actually are pretty distinct as far as how they look, even though they're in the same kind of vein as cave games. They're still, they still stand out as their own unique bullet designs. Yeah. And I think some of them are actually an improvement over some of the cave bullets, especially if you guys ever play uh, Donanpachi or DOJ. There's these blue line-style bullets in those games, these blue needles. I hate those bullets, and I always will, because the the bullet shape does not accurately convey the hitboxes on those things. Mm. There's times when you're dodging the bullet, and you feel like you didn't even touch it. The hitboxes on them are, like, bigger than the bullets or something. It's, it's odd. The needle-style bullets in this game are a lot more, I think, visually accurate to the hitboxes. So if you dodge the needle, you dodged it. It's not like you're going to get hit by this invisible box or whatever, so... Oh, okay. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, one one negative I would say is um, there are some spots in the graphics, uh, I'm thinking particularly backgrounds, where they're a little bit rough or they've got funky textures. Um, for example, in the first stage when you're flying over the water, there are some spots where, like at the beginning of the stage in the little intro bit, you're, the water is going by so fast that it looks choppy. Yeah. And I know... There's an issue with the game that I found out during the course of the month where, and apparently it's never been patched, but when you play the game a lot, eventually it performs more poorly every time you play it. That's happened to me. Until you reboot your computer, and then that makes it all better, and then it starts to perform better again. So I'm not sure if it's a memory leak or what it is, but I noticed that during the month, and, and when I was streaming it, you know, there was... I played it a couple of times, and then all of a sudden it was really choppy, and, and uh, you know, I, I can say that I blame that for when I was playing, like, hot garbage, but uh, but it probably wasn't that. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know what that's, that's called? That's called SNES Slowdown. Yeah. It's actually really weird. So, that happened to me a lot. Pretty much every other time I played, it got really choppy, and I was wondering, what the hell is going on here? And, yeah, so it was happening to you as well. Yeah, and, and someone in chat was telling me that apparently that's a known issue with the game, and it's a bug that hasn't been fixed. And uh, at this point, I, you know, I'm not sure if they're going to fix it, but, but uh, when you play the game a few times, then it's best to reboot your computer before you play it again so that it can come up and do that. So like I said, I don't know if it's a memory leak or what it is. Now, on the system I'm playing on, my gaming setup I've got in my living room that I stream with you know, it's a beefy computer. I mean, it's got 16 gigs of RAM. It's got a, a GTX 1060 in it with yeah. 6 gigs of RAM. You know, I've got an i7, 8th uh, gen i7 processor. So, I mean, it's a it's a screaming machine. Uh, and it's, it's more machine than this game needs. So, I didn't notice it quite as severely. And I think I maybe rebooted my system four or five times during the course of the month because of that. But... Yeah, that's a factor. And so, I mean, if you're running it on something that's 
a little less of a powerhouse, then yeah, you probably would have to restart your computer more frequently. So it is something to notice. Uh, the other thing with some of the graininess, and it just kind of struck me funny, is there was one other area in the game, and I want to say it was either in stage two, it was either in stage one or two, where you're flying over ground of some kind. I think it was in stage two, where you're flying over this sort of desert area toward the beginning. There are some spots that look really grainy, and I know it's sand, desert, grain, haha, but but the actual patterns reminded me of ground patterns from the old DOS shoot-'em-up Raptor Call of the Shadows uh, from way back in the early to mid-90s, just because of how low-res and, you know, janky the texture looked. And so I didn't know if that was on purpose or if it was just that, you know, well, this is how we're going to make the desert look and whatever. You know, it didn't it didn't really detract from my enjoyment of the game, but I thought it was odd that in this game that otherwise is visually very striking and looks really good, that there's a couple of spots like that, like that super fast choppiness over the water or that really kind of garbage looking texture of the sand and the, the desert there that they kind of stood out, you know, like a sore thumb in contrast to everything else. I agree, actually. And I actually um, interviewed Patoing for one of my podcast episodes back, and he's a sprite artist. And he mentioned that he felt like the graphics in this game have are really noisy, is how he described it. And I agree. There's a lot of textures, not just the ones you mentioned there, but even like the ships and the bullets and the just like the whole game. There's a lot of there seems to be a lot of noise. I guess you you know what I'm saying. Like it's yeah. kind of like I guess a good way to describe noise is if you take a JPEG and then you expand it bigger than it should be. And then you compress it back down and it looks all blotchy and strange. That A lot of textures are kind of like that in this game. You know, the it's interesting because I, I'm reminded of one of our earliest episodes of this podcast where we played Raiden 5 and we talked about that. And one of the things in that game that uh, I noticed is that in the sections where you go really fast and the ground or whatever's below you scrolls really fast everything looks blurry because you're going so fast and that's a natural effect. Whereas for some reason in this game, the noise I think gets amplified when you go faster, when the background scrolls really fast because you've got that combination of all these enemies and bullets on the screen, all the stars that you're getting, especially yeah. in break mode and the choppiness of those backgrounds going by super fast but then also being noisy, like you said. And so it's this really weird kind of jarring effect. Again, it doesn't detract from my enjoyment of the game, um, but definitely, you know, from a visual aesthetic and acuity kind of thing, you know, it's it's definitely something that I would say, hopefully as, as the developer makes new games and continues to develop games, that he will take that into consideration and and, you know, work on that that background art to try and make it a little bit less noisy, I guess. I think one thing that might be interesting to think about is when I looked at the game visually, I noticed that the later stages look a lot better and a lot less noisy than the early stages. So I wonder if it was literally an issue of trial of like learning as he was programming the game. 
stage one and stage two, he's still kind of figuring out what he was doing. And then by the time he hits three, four, and five, his abilities as a developer improve and the, the levels look better. That could very well be, because I think, uh, yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Because this is his first shmup, or his first game that I'm aware of, so it could have been he spent, like, a few years working on the first bit and then improved what he was doing as he went along, maybe. Yeah. Addicted, do you have any uh, any other thoughts to talk about with graphics before we move on? Well, I was just thinking in regards to the graphics on there that at the you got to think that the you have this monster PC compared to what what the recommended requirements are and the recommended requires for this like a Pentium 4 you know with I mean this is stuff from like 2006 2007 this this is a game that's going to have a little bit of a slower burn as far as the development cycle so I'm guessing that along with him learning more and maybe uh selling enough copies to upgrade his Photoshop or whatever tools he used to create the game, that he's going to be making this for a little bit of a wider audience or dealing with something with people whose PCs aren't as powerful. So I wonder if at the time he's like, okay, I've my target spec is for this is going to be a dual-core Pentium or something like that. And then, his, then as the technology changed, as he was getting there, he could get more out of it. That's possible. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I mean, this came out in, what, 2011, I think, what you said was the initial run of it? Yeah. Well, and and the other thing to think of is, you know, we're, we're critiquing the game in this way, and we're, we're adding these things, but at the end of the day, these are relatively small critiques, given the fact that, again, we're talking about one person who made this game. Oh, yeah. And did all this graphic design and all the level design, which is incredibly adept. Uh, obviously, you know, he made a cave-style game, and he he did so in a way that shows that he really studied other cave games to really make something that emulated that style yeah. very effectively. Uh, and so, obviously, he can be forgiven for some right. some visual noise and some graphical faux pas in his first game when it's his first game and it's as good as this. Yeah, I definitely should point out that in the larger picture, the visual visuals of the game are absolutely insane for being an indie release, especially I think it looks better than SDOJ. I think it looks a lot better. So I feel like this game in a lot of ways is an improvement over Cave's own work later on, so... A lot of the shmup community feels that way as well, yeah. based on the yeah. voting. So, yeah, it's it, this game looks like it looks like it was made by a studio, not just one dude. So that's an insanely good achievement for sure. Yeah, we've got a quote here from Hardcore Gamer that uh, Fro and I really like: "When an indie developer comes along and manages to out shmup the king of shmups, people stop and take notice. That's the case with Crimson Clover." Definitely. The, the other thing that I have to say about this is in order for you to make a good Damaku game, you have to be able to tell the difference between a bullet and an enemy, and you have to keep everything going. I mean, for the amount of crazy stuff that's thrown on the screen, and the amount of stuff that's always going through with the game, to be able to differentiate between that and not feel like you were ever cheated at, like, hey, it's the game's fault I lost. On this, all, every time I died, every time I had a problem, I said, it's, it's not a problem with the controls, it's not a problem with the way that this looked, it wasn't because it's blue and it should have been pink. 
you know, a, a call out to Last Hope here, but uh, it's just, it's very well done, and it keeps you focused, it keeps you engaged almost the entire time. The fact that we're nitpicking these small nitpicks tells you how good the game is. Yeah, and I, I think I should also add well, one really cool thing about Crimson Clover that I even forget about is the fact that it runs at 60 FPS all day, every day. It's, you're not running into these slowdown issues with, like, SDOJ and even the original Donanpachi where the game's going along all nicely, and then you get the slowdown, and then you think, oh, okay, this is a nice little bit of slowdown where I can use my to maneuver my ship, and then the game decides, no, we're not slowing down anymore, and the bullets just fly and hit you in the face. I think the way Crimson Clover approaches it is much better, where instead of introducing this artificial slowdown... It just slows the bullets and keeps them at a consistent pace. And I think that's actually a, be a better way of making a Danmaku than some of the later cave releases where the bullets are just speeding up and slowing down randomly and you're kind of having to guess whether or not you're going to get killed or not. There's an FPS counter on the game that shows, and I, in, in Tate mode it's at the bottom right and it's just a little small FPS counter. And for me, it was never consistently 60 frames all the time. But it, it was very slight dips, you know, 59.71 and 59.85 or whatever. And so it, it would dip below 60, and that's kind of where it would hover, is kind of sort of between 59.7 and 60.01 or whatever. And, and that was kind of its range. But realistically, when you're talking about that many frames per second and your your frame rate is or the frame rate that you're getting is just a hair under that 60 frame per second. It's not even a half frame that you're, that you yeah. may be lagging behind. It's pretty negligible and you're more of a frame counting guy than I am. You know, I, I haven't got kind of that far down into the weeds, but I did notice that, you know, it was pretty consistent like that throughout, you know, it reminds me of when you were talking about, uh, SDOJ and and cave games, so you know, slowing down, and that reminds me of like the the original of uh, the the Saturn port of the original Dompachi, eh. um, where there are moments in the game where it slows down so much that it feels like you know ten or fifteen frames per second, you know, and it's it's frequent enough that it's pretty noticeable, and it's still very playable, but this game definitely performs much better than that or you know anything like that to where other than that little bit of choppiness once in a while with the graphics i really didn't notice any significant performance issues with it yeah i i should mention too because yeah this is kind of more frame counting nerd type information but most dan maku games that cave made were actually do not run anywhere close to 60 fps huh. dodonpachi runs at 57.6 that's its highest and then when it starts to hit slowdown you're getting down to the 40 something 48 49 i mean wow. when it when it drops frames it drops them frames a lot so yeah like crimson clover's slight dips here and there i think for me that's that's as consistent as you can ask for but yeah it's pretty forgivable in the, in the <laughs> yeah. long run right especially with all the stuff that's going on on screen the stars the bullets it's pretty nuts yeah uh, so let's talk about the music and the sound here, I guess. I guess the, the one, my understanding is that Yotsubane or Clover Tech did everything in the game except the music. 
Uh, and that was composed by someone named Poteki. That, that, that's my understanding of it. Mark, do you know of anything different than that? That sounds right to me. Okay. I mean, he's only a man. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I just had a few notes here that I'll, I'll share on, you know, some of the, some of the pieces in the game real, real briefly here, but it's kind of a, a several different moods on the, in the soundtrack, you know, kind of, uh, synth rock, techno, uh, maybe EDM, I guess you could say, and some synth pop stuff like, uh, stage one is pretty high energy and, uh, stage two kind of has an epic feel uh, you know it feels a lot like a kind of a ride in three or ride in four sort of thing uh and then stage three it starts off a whole lot moodier and more down tempo uh and i put in the notes here almost pensive uh of course it picks up again throughout the the stage a little bit and adds more of a beat underneath but it, it's it definitely changes the the tone uh stage four brings it up and and is much brighter overall and then stage five um is split into two different tracks so the first half is uh pretty high energy uh at the beginning but then when you go into that section with that reprise of the stage two spider boss coming up from behind you like you were talking about earlier mark mm -hmm. then the music becomes a lot darker and more foreboding uh during that sequence and then the boss theme for stage five i thought was particularly somber in tone compared especially to the first boss you know, because you go into the first boss and it, it's really not that difficult a boss fight, uh, even in arcade mode. If you can get there with a break meter and you can build up and double break on him, you can take him out pretty quickly and he's not that difficult. But that stage five boss can be a challenge. Oh, yeah. And so it's an interesting dichotomy where you've got that extreme challenge, but instead of high energy music that's like pumping you up and like, yeah, 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 let's go. It's, uh, it's much more somber and, uh, you know, almost like this boss is going to throw so much at you that you're going to die. And this is yeah. your funeral dirge. That's you know, exactly kind how of, I feel. Kind of music with it. Yeah, it's definitely not Metal Squad with that high energy uh, <laughs> that's pumping you through. Right. Uh, the name of the final boss theme, the, the true last boss theme is called Crimson Heart. And I thought it was fitting because it's, uh, it's real bright synth, but it's minor key and sort of staccato. And so it kind of, it kind of combines several of those moods, you know, it's got that, that heavy synth, but it's also with the staccato kind of, uh, approach, it really, you know, makes you feel like everything is coming to a head. Uh, so I thought that was nice. And uh, that uh, the credit roll music called Torch for Peace has a nice kind of reprise of the stage one music and, and kind of mixes in a little bit of the other themes. And so that's kind of a nice end cap uh, to to the game. Uh, and then the, the high score music uh, called Memories of, I thought was a real nice piece it had a, a somber tone to it, but sort of a, a bit of hopefulness in it as well. And so uh, a lot of times when I would end one of my streams, I would leave it at the 
high score screen while I was kind of talking and letting letting everybody know, hey, thanks for coming, and you know, this is when I'll be streaming again, and you know, all of that stuff. And as I would end the stream and switch over to my end screen and let that play out for a minute or two before I actually stop the stream, uh, I would leave it on that high score music and just let it loop because it's such a nice kind of way to end that. And so, I don't know, I really like that tune, even though I heard it a ton during <laughs> the course of the month. Um, but overall, I, I really like the soundtrack. Uh, and then there's a couple of, of tracks that are especially for the time attack mode, one that plays during kind of the level proper, and then it shifts to another one during the sort of boss fight with uh, the train thing at the end. Uh, and so I thought that was cool that they didn't just recycle the stage one music or something else from in the yeah. game, that it was actually distinctive music for the time attack mode since it's a whole different stage. Yeah, I like how definitely one thing you got to point out is I don't believe there's any recycled music at all. And I think that's an important thing in a shmup. Having played Dodonpachi where the tracks get recycled all the time, you get so sick of those songs. You're like, oh, it's the same song over and over for hours. So that's one really cool thing. I noticed that when I was watching uh, one of your uh, Dodonpachi streams the other night is that it seemed like you were going from one level to the next and then when you went to the next level, it's like, well, wait, wasn't this the music yes. from two levels ago? And so it feels like they're just taking the same track and going back and forth with it. Now, don't get me wrong, I like the tracks, but that that would get old if you're if you're grinding at the game the way that you do and practicing it over and over so that you can learn those layouts and all of that stuff. It, they would get old. Yeah, and I think just speaking of the, I guess, composition of the soundtrack in general, I think it it does a really good job of definitely communicating the mood of the game where you can definitely tell the composer had notes or looked at the game and was giving like live feedback. For instance, stage three, it, like you said, has that kind of somber, creepy, like spooky beginning or whatever that is. That makes sense because stage three is in a cave and it's the only stage like where you start off in a dark cave. And it is kind of spooky. And then as you go through the stage, it picks up because you start to exit the cave and go into the more of like a, a natural area and stuff. Whenever there's a big transition in the scene of the game, the soundtrack transitions with it. So it gives a really dynamic feel like you're going on a journey rather than like in Dodonpachi. Okay, stage one theme. Okay, you're in stage three. Same theme or whatever. So Yeah, and... and it's interesting because I mentioned this before and I made the Raiden 5 comparison, but one of the things I really liked about Raiden 5 with its soundtrack is that the music in the game was perfectly timed with the different scenes within each stage. Uh, you know, you would have the music play up and you would complete a portion of the level and then it would give you a little recap and then you'd fly back into the action. And the music in those was always perfectly timed to where the track would pick up again or it would transition into something in one of those times when you would jump back into the action. And so this game, it really did, did um, follow that, you know, a similar kind of trajectory where the music suits the level, uh, but not just because it, it fits with the aesthetic or the flow or whatever, but because, yeah, as you go through the level, the, the flow or the, the, the sound of the music, the beat where it swells and where it diminishes, all of that seems to fit really well with where you're at in the level and what's going on. 
Yeah, and also, the game actually has a non-annoying boss fight theme, so that's nice. Yeah. Where you're not... <laughs> where you're, the boss fight theme isn't unbearable and you have to listen to it over and over. Right. Yeah, I, I thought it was pretty good. Definitely. What about you, Addict? What are your, what's your take on the soundtrack? I really like the soundtrack overall. I didn't find myself getting annoyed by any of the songs that were in there. The one thing that I would like to try, and I have to, of course, cough up the five bucks for the DLC, is to try to download the soundtrack, which apparently has chiptunes or 8-bit arrangements. Yep. The themes, and I would definitely want to listen to those. I'd almost listen to those just even outside the game. It's for me. They're pretty awesome. Oh, cool. Well, I'll have to give it a shot. The one thing I will say about the soundtrack is it fits the game really well. I, I there's nothing that annoy me, but at the same time, there's not anything that that I'm still find myself after I've turned the game off. I'm humming in my head or I'm replaying over and over. It's great. I like it a lot. But but I can't. If you were to ask me to come up with some with a tune in my head, I I couldn't come up with it. Where oh. where like for Thunder Force, those tunes have now been in, especially Lightning Force. Those tunes are ingrained in my head. Same with some of the stuff from Gradius. Or maybe it's just because I need I need to listen to it outside of uh, you know five million things exploding in stars everywhere. But for, for me, the soundtrack was great. But but outside of the game, I couldn't uh, piece anything or put anything together. That's just my personal opinion. Yeah, and I guess I spent so much time in lo- in stages one through three that uh, <laughs> those tunes are are pretty well cemented right now. Uh, you know, months from now, when I'm not actively playing the game or or listening to the soundtrack on a regular basis, you know, they they probably won't come to mind as quickly as as uh, you know, something like Gallantry or, or some of the, you know, shmup soundtracks that I've listened to for years and years. But, uh, but overall, I thought the music was good. Yeah, I think I could agree. It doesn't have those really memorable tunes and themes. An example I can think of if you guys ever played Under Defeat, that soundtrack I listen to all the time, even though I never play the actual game that much. Just because the, the themes in it are so iconic and catchy. But... Yeah, I don't think I feel the same way about the Crimson Clover soundtrack. I do own it. I've listened to it a few times, but I don't regularly listen to it outside of playing the game. So, What about sound effects? Um, what do you guys think? I think the sound effects were really good. As far as they're nice, stuff was exploding, and it was felt nice and satisfying with the explosions. And the, the uh, when you get a break, it's like, swing, like, like you're unsighting a sword or something. I thought that yeah. was pretty cool. Yeah, that was a nice touch. That sound effect's ingrained into my mind forever. Well, and the, and the the fact that there's a nice audio cue for when your brake meter fills up enough to where you can use a bomb, and again, when your brake meter fills mm-hmm. up enough to where you can break. I think that's much better than a visual cue, because when I play shmups where you have to look visually at your meters, if you can hyper or not, I actually struggle with that just because I'm trying to juggle everything with my eyes on screen. But with this game, I would hear the break mirror and be like, okay, I got a break. So I think that was, yeah, the sound design's really good as far as communicating when your breaks are available. Yeah, it's a nice little quality of life feature that you don't think about, but then when you're presented with it in a game like this, it's like, oh, that's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely say that in a game with this much going on visually, your sound effects have to be excellent across the board. And I think it does it without question. 
is those as you mentioned it gives you those audio cues so you know when something is coming through because you're being constantly barraged visually with bullets and stars and chips and everything going through yeah the other nice thing I noticed is that it's not nothing out there decided it would try and blow up my speaker so nothing was too loud or too soft that I couldn't hear yeah. everything was balanced really well yeah that's nice okay so now that we've kind of laid out all of the uh, different facets of the game and and talked about you know the gameplay the scoring graphics and sound all of that stuff are there any I guess other impressions about the game that that you guys want to share or or anything else that either we didn't touch on or you wanted to highlight specifically uh, I had some ideas just for maybe listeners out there who don't play many Danmaku games or don't play a lot of bullet hell style games um, I think this is actually a really good introduction to the genre. It's got a lot of really good quality of life accessibility features. It has a great novice mode that's not a complete joke or doesn't humiliate you. So the novice mode is actually worth playing and it's a lot of fun. It has tutorials. It communicates its scoring system to you. Yeah, it vi- gives you a lot of visual feedback of what's going on as far as your score, your breaking, your bomb. The game communicates with you really well. It doesn't have any weird hidden mechanics. And as, a far, as far as I'm aware, I don't think there is a rank system or a very strong rank system. So it's not going to be one of those games where you're wondering why, why is it getting harder for no reason and stuff like that. I think it's a really good intro. It's also really affordable. You don't have to import it. You can play it on your PC. Um, sometimes the sales on it are ridiculously low. I think I've bought a copy for like $5. There's regular sales on this game. It runs really well, other than that whole bug issue of needing to restart your computer every now and then. Um, it has a cool uh, video option where you can disable VSync. So if you want to play with really low latency, you can do that. I'm trying to think of other reasons why you should play Crimson Clover, besides it just being one of the best games out there. It really is a game that has something for everybody on here. As long as people are willing to give it a chance, they'll definitely find something to like. Yeah, and I would I would echo a lot of what you said, Mark. Uh- Danmaku games, bullet hell games, it's a it's a genre that I have struggled to get into over the years. And like I said, I, I own the the original Saturn port of Dompachi, and by the time I get to stage three in that game, I get destroyed and I've never I've never been motivated to put enough time into it to really get anywhere. And you know, some of that is is because I have a lot of games to play and it's like I can throw it in and and, uh, you know, play it for a few minutes and enjoy it or credit feed my way through just to, you know, have some fun with it. But it's not one that I've ever, like I said, been motivated to, to play for score or to really do a legit clear of. Whereas Crimson Clover, I was consistently motivated to keep coming back to it. And the game was fun enough. And like you said, with novice mode, you know, when I sat down and started playing the game, it took me two weeks to clear novice mode. Now, of course, I went in with a little bit of knowledge about how to play bullet hell games, you know, knowing that you need to sneak through bullet patterns, you know, micro dodge versus macro dodge, and, you know, that you can kind of direct enemy fire and things like that, or or that there are times when you need to kind of, kind of scoot across the screen while an enemy pattern is coming in so that you can sort of take stuff out in, in succession while avoiding the bullets and that. So I... Some of those tips and tricks I, I already kind of 
had, you know, in my back pocket ready to use. But it's really accessible because, like you said, the novice mode isn't a joke. It's not novice in air quotes where it's just slightly easier than the normal mode where it's still going to humiliate you. Uh, but it's mm-hmm. not so easy that you feel like, well, there's no challenge here. Why am I even playing? I'm just, I'm just annihilating everything that comes on screen and I barely have anything to dodge. I think it strikes a really good balance in the novice difficulty of giving you a sense of what it is and that there's stuff that you're going to need to dodge. And by the end, you know, by stage five, it still gets pretty, pretty hairy in novice mode in stages four and five to where there's still plenty of stuff to dodge, especially with the true last boss. Um, You know, there's still plenty to dodge and plenty to have to mitigate. And so I felt like after two weeks of playing the game and getting to the true last boss and being on my last life and whittling down that last little sliver of health, you know, it was hugely satisfying for me as someone who considers himself average at best at shoot 'em ups uh, and certainly less than average at bullet hell games. And so this is a game that I think is, it's much more approachable in that sense. And it's, as you said, it's a great introduction to the genre because it has those quality of life features and it has just a really nice balance that you can jump in and not feel like you're getting destroyed five seconds into the game. And, you know, it's it's easy to make relatively consistent progress in that novice mode. Now, in arcade mode, you might feel a little overwhelmed at first, but I still was kind of making consistent progress throughout the rest of the month. I didn't make as much progress, and I felt like I hit a wall a little bit toward the end, uh, you know, not being able to quite reach the, the stage three end boss. But I feel like if I'd have stuck with it or if I would, you know, keep going back to this game for a few more weeks, I could probably get a, a consistent clear in arcade difficulty on original mode and feel pretty good about it. Uh, I mean, even boost mode, you know, I played boost mode on novice. And after having played the game all month and understanding level layouts and all that, even though the bullets and bullet patterns are different in boost than they are in original mode, I still got to clear my second or third try of boost mode on novice. So I feel like, you know, it's approachable in that sense. And there are a lot of options for people who, you know, might want to get into a game of this type, but are apprehensive about it or feel like I'm going to spend five bucks or 10 bucks or whatever. And then I'm going to play for 20 minutes and get destroyed and then be discouraged and never want to come back to it again. Yeah. And I also think just going along those same lines, another thing about Crimson Clover that I think is good for newcomers is that it's instantly fun. It's not one of those shmups where you have to spend all this time to get any sort of enjoyment out of it. I think that's why it's caught on with people like Super Bunny Hop or, or Turtle Biscuit in the past was because it's instantly fun right away. So yeah, I definitely encourage you guys to check it out if you get the chance. For sure. Yeah, it's definitely easy to get into but hard to master, which is exactly the type of pull that you want. That's what made, as you mentioned in your pinball episode, that's what made pinball so successful is someone could pop in a quarter or a token and you get yourself three plays and at the time, the time they're done with their game, they may have spent either three minutes or five minutes, but they still had a fun game where someone who's going to be going for that knows how to shoot the balls, where to 
get the multi-ball, where to shoot all the ramps, all the trick shots is going to get a lot more enjoyment out of it, but they're, they're both going to be playing the same game and enjoying it. And I really love that yeah. pinball analogy that you put forth. Yeah, I think that is really good comparison with Crimson Clover, too. Um, any other final impressions, uh, Dick did? Uh, the only other final impression I would put on it is, uh, again, for some, for one person, actually two people, one person who did the uh, music and one person who did pretty much everything else on here. It's an amazing first first job. I would love to see more from here to, in, uh, and especially to see if we can get this on a console system. Because no matter how much you say about PC, and there's tons of PCs out there. You need a little bit more. I mean, look look at uh, Devil Engine recently. Devil Engine was released on Switch, and it, and it was released on Steam. You don't hear anybody talking about the Steam release. Everybody's talking about the Switch release. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's a, a shame a lot more of these games don't get put on everything. There's no reason not to, really, other than, I guess, dev time. <laughs> oh, yeah. but, but other than that. I would love to see it on the Switch, as I mentioned before. I'm not sure how financially viable that isn't with all the costs, but at least it will get it more of an exposure. There may be a broader audience with PCs, and there certainly is, but with consoles, they're just, I mean, the amount, shmups are seen as something sort of new, niche and new and interesting that people are starting to pay a lot more attention to on consoles versus on PCs. Yeah. I think consoles, just in general, if you're a shmup dev out there, I always, the shmup devs I do know, I always kind of try and nag them about, hey, put this on the Switch, hey, put this on, put this on consoles, because I think shmups get more attention, they get more press, and they get more sales on consoles, even if hardcore players like myself prefer them on PCs, there's no reason not to also do a release on a console for more, for a wider audience, basically. Yeah, and especially... With your what you're seeing now with uh, Rolling Gunner on the Switch, you know it hasn't hit the Western eShops yet, as far as I know, but uh, it's gotten a lot of a lot of traction. I've been seeing on Twitter um, and a lot of tweets and a lot of retweets, and you know yeah. a fair amount of buzz for again that's another Dojin shmup that just came out within the past year, and uh, you know I, I bought the the Dojin DVD PC release. Because because Me I'm too. a shmup fan and a nerd and a collector, and uh, you know it was inexpensive enough that I could buy the the DVD and the soundtrack CD for less than a uh, you know a standard Switch game release or whatever you know kind of console game release, and you know you get a lot of mileage out of that. But I could see myself taking that to work with me on my Switch, and you know throw my my 8-bit dough pad in in the my lunch bag with me and then throw it in the flip grip and use the little card thing to stand it up so that even though you know it's a horizontal game you can slip their little instruction card in the back and then just use that to set it up so that it stands up straight even in in landscape mode and then i can sit there and play that over my lunch break at work and uh you know, get some good game time in, where on PC, you know, I, I can't load a game like that on my work computer. Yeah. You know, but like this month, uh, you know, the game we're playing this month, I can take that on my PSP and play it on lunch. And so, you know, that that kind of thing is very appealing to me. And I know, especially for the Japanese market, since handheld gaming has become such a thing, and the, the Switch is right now 
poised to, within the next few months, overtake the lifetime sales of the PS4 in Japan. Uh, and so there's, yeah. there's more of an incentive, especially for indie devs in Japan or indie devs in the West who are targeting Japanese genres or, you know, historically Japanese genres like the shoot 'em up to get their, their stuff on the Switch. And, and I know I'm, I'm harping on it being on the Switch, but ultimately being on consoles is a good thing because then you just, you have that wider audience or that chance for a wider audience. I think a lot of people don't realize in the West is that PC gaming, at least not until very recently, is not really a thing in Japan compared to the US. So, yeah, it's like a niche of a niche, putting indie shmup, if you're going for a Japanese audience, on just PCs because you need to reach the niche shmup audience and then the niche audience with within them who actually play on PC. So, yeah, I definitely agree that more console ports of these types of games would be really good. Because Japanese PCs are for sh surfing the web and visual novels, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's a law. If you start running a shmup on there, you know, the, the cues are breaking and smash your computer. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I mean, well, the Japanese market was historically segmented anyways with the MSX, the PC-88, and the X-68000 all those different standards on there and, and just they didn't embrace the uh, the open standard like the west does for a number of reasons but the other thing that we have to think about too is with steam i mean how many games are released on steam per day to try and get some exposure yeah. out of that it's yeah it's i could see why that they definitely have problems and by going your own self-publishing route or going with switch would get you a lot more traction and in front of a lot more eyeballs quickly yeah, like there are certain outlets who literally exist just to cover Switch games, even if they're not the normal genres of games. For instance, when Ikaruga got ported to the Switch, I mean, the game got a ton of attention, where I think the Steam port got some attention, but not nearly as much. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've got like Switch Mania on Twitter, and you have Nintendo, Nintendo Life. Life, and there's, uh, I can't remember the name of the podcast. It's a Switch themed podcast that, uh, that, uh, I, was listening to last year quite a bit and there's a lot of that going on so yeah de devs have every incentive to try and get their game on the switch because it's uh games typically perform better on the on the switch eShop than they do on other markets just because the nintendo switch audience seems to be more keen on those kinds of experiences yeah so speaking of experiences shall we talk about some of the experiences our forum members have for this month? Yeah. All right, we'll start off with Lorb Orb 4. It says, I've been slacking off the past few months, but I'm all in for this one. <laughs> Thanks for joining us and participating. Uh, hopefully you had as good a time as we did on this. We have a quote from Square Air. Count me in as well. I was interested in the last few games, but this is a little too preoccupied to satisfyingly participate. I'm glad there's such a good game selection out for the same month as my return. Said, I didn't end up playing much of this, but I increased my personal best a bit. That's always good to do. It's one of the things that I love about this game is, in some ways, it's a shmup's trainer for me. I definitely felt my skill at Damaku Games increasing because of this. 
especially as soon as I start switching from normal to arcade mode. And it's certainly a heck of a lot cheaper than Takahashi Majin's, uh, what is that, it's a little watch? Did you have to press that to get this? Oh. You know what I'm talking about? 16 shots per second? Yeah, the, the Hudson uh, the, deal. Hudson, the Hudson, Hudson B counter, whatever that thing is. Yeah. <laughs> You'll definitely get a lot more out of that than this. Well, thanks again for joining us. We have Dingo. You said, put me down for this one. I already have a few hours to practice, so let's see. I haven't passed stage 2 boss on Arcade. I'll be able to get to stage 4 boss on Novice, but died swiftly. Well, anybody who's played Arcade knows that stage 1, you can get by pretty well. But once you start getting into about the midsection of stage 2, you have to know what you're doing and you have to continue on. When If you can get past this boss of stage 3, well, you're definitely a better player than I am. <laughs> that difficulty ramps up pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, one of our big participants of the month was Zoido. Um, he jumped in and really went for it. He says, I haven't played too much Crimson Clover before. Just a few hours to take a look at the game and do some credit feed runs in novice mode. So I didn't play for scores or clears before, just very casual. Two weeks ago, I started to play some novice mode to get back into the game and to get used to this to the mechanics. This weekend, I started to play arcade mode. Stage 3 boss was the end of the line. In Unlimited, I barely made it to stage 2, but I could finish the time attack with a C-plus rank and without dying. Uh, Mid-boss and boss defeated. And in a later post, he says, Also tried to beat my novice original score today, but failed. This was the first time I went for the star bonuses instead of the 1-ups. I feel like the 1-ups give you more bonus points at the end of the game. For each life left, uh, 25 billion in original and 30 billion in boost, but I'm not quite sure how this works. Did another try in novice original a few days ago and made it no miss to the final boss, but then I screwed it by losing 3 lives and missed my score pretty close. And then again later he writes, in Arcade Original, I still struggle and focus on surviving. There's simply too much I still need to concentrate on, so most of the time I'm not able to watch Multiplier or Break Rate. But still I wish I, uh, but still I could get a bit of a feeling on how to score a little better, even without watching this stuff, and at least I was able to beat my Stage 1 score. And uh, at the end of the thread, he shared some final thoughts on the game. He says, what I really like about Crimson Clover is how it seems to borrow elements from other shmups and combines them in a way that works out very well and makes absolute sense. As you play through the game, you can spot quite a few things that seem familiar. Never too obvious, but in a way that pays homage to the genre and some of its classics in general. Another thing that's really cool is that you can always track your progress in the game by just taking a look at the medals and trophies you earn for the different modes and ships. It's also very comfortable to catalog your scores, as the game shows you every information you need on the game over uh, score screen, such as your ship, your stage progress, score, stars, break rate, boost count, etc. It even gives you all these information in the replay menu and in the online leaderboards as well. It's balanced very well, and the multiplayer uh, the multiple game modes and difficulties make it challenging for from everyone, from beginner to pro. The time attack mode is perfect if you're busy and just want to play 5 minutes in between, and also for caravan-like competitions. 
Crimson Clover just got everything one could possibly ask for. It looks nice, and the soundtrack is awesome. It's still unbelievable to me that this game was created by a single person. Yeah, I gotta echo a lot of that. So, really appreciate uh, Zoido's fervor and participation during the month, because he really posted a lot of scores and, you know, showed that he was making progress throughout the course of the month and uh, sharing strategy and tips and, you know, really got into the discussion. So that that's what this is all about. 100% agree on there. It, it's all about having fun, trying to better yourself and your skills, and, well, having fun. Yep. Yeah, and I think participating in a game with a bunch of other players adds an excitement factor that you don't get if you just play a game by yourself for a few weeks because it's fun to go back and forth with other people and uh, ask other people for ideas and strategies, maybe form some rivalries and stuff like that. Yeah, I completely agree. If I just tell my uh, cat, you know, I just got beat my high score in DOJ, it's not the same as posting online and talking to somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Your cat's like, sure, where's food? (laughs) Yeah, well... Everybody can see on my streams that my dogs don't care about, you know, me getting a high score in my shmup. They just want me to pet them. If only you could train them to motivate you, right? Yeah. They bark at you at six. <laughs> Crimson Clover. <laughs> <laughs> Get to it. They bring you the controller in their mouth, drop it on your lap. <laughs> uh, uh, that'd be a little hard since they're chihuahuas. Wrap it around. I guess the two of them work together. There you go. <laughs> uh. All right, we've got one from Normatron here who is posting a score. My first real run, and I don't think I did that bad, but I can't get to the second stage boss without getting shot down. Now, <clears throat> I had problems with the second stage when I first started out as well. I don't think it's that uncommon. It's The first stage, even when you're playing on novice, lulls you into a bit of a false sense of security. Because with stage two, especially after the mid-boss, there's a lot going on that you have to watch out for. And it's really easy in your first couple tries to sort of get hit by a stray bullet. It's not quite like Einhander, what the heck hit me, but it's still pretty hard to watch out for. Did you find the same way, Fro? Yeah, you you kind of made a good point there without without explicitly saying it, but... The, the difficulty in the game ramps up really nicely. You know, it's it's relatively short at five stages. So if you think about an old school shooter like a Raiden or something like that, where, you know, the first level's not too bad, the second level is usually reasonably manageable, and then by the third stage, somewhere in that third stage is where things start to ramp up. And in this game, yeah, things kind of scale up a little bit, somewhere around the halfway point of of stage two that stage two mid boss starts to throw some goofy stuff at you uh and then after that it gets kind of crazy for a little bit because there's a big rush of enemies and stuff like that and then the train or the trains and that and then of course the spider boss at the end uh throws i think a whole lot more at you or more to deal with and and more to pay attention to than the first boss and then of course by the time you get to the third level then uh, everything ramps up further and they change it up again. And, and so I, I think the difficulty ramps up nicely. And so, uh, you know, Normatron saying this, yeah, it's, it's perfectly normal. And I would say because of this game's short length, 
it's easy to get discouraged when you can't even make it to the stage two boss. But at the same time, when you're only talking about five stages, that's that's not bad. And so, you know, just keep at it and, you know, you'll get there. Um, so we've got a quote here from Quentin Goku. I like the name. He says, I'm in. I will make a few runs and post a score pick. I have this on Steam and play it frequently. One gripe I have about this game is the built-in screen shaking. Hands down one of my favorite soundtracks in all shmups that I've played. I would be happy to represent the low-scoring population members of this forum. <laughs> represent? <laughs> Who knows, maybe my participation will encourage others to get involved with the monthly plays. I'm in the group that loves shmups and not always the best at them. Hey, I'm in the same group here. I think that's important, though. I've talked about this a lot on my podcast, actually, where, I mean, shmups can get kind of elitist, we all know that, and if you get to, like, when you do scoring competitions, or you do scoreboards, and the only people playing are, like, beasts, and only posting high scores, then I think people get intimidated to play, but I, I like what Tengoku says here, where even though he doesn't feel like he's a top player or anything, he still plays anyway, because I think that is important, that more people, I mean, you gotta start somewhere, and I was that way a few years ago with Dodonpachi, where I got my first one all, I was like, I thought I was the most badass person ever, and then I go onto the shmups forum, and they changed this, but at the time it was like, if your score is below this point, don't even bother posting it, and my score was like below that, I was like, man, that's rough, so, I think, yeah, anyway, yeah, I think people should join in, even if you don't feel like you're going to get these massive scores, because I don't think that's what's important, I think participation's a lot more important. Yes, yeah. and, and this is a point that I want to hammer on, because this is exactly why I started the Shmup Club in the first place, because it's a genre that I love, but I'm not particularly good at it, and so... This is a way for me to share the love of that genre and encourage myself to play these games more, put myself in a position where I'm going to, and it forces me to do it, hopefully encourage other people to do it. And, you know, I don't, like I said, I don't consider myself to be that good. So it doesn't matter how bad or good you think you are at these games. Post a score. Talk about the game. Tell me why you're frustrated with it. Share it with the, the group, and then we can help tag team it and you know give you strategies or or give you some tips on on what you can do to make your that experience better this is the whole reason for the club you know you don't have to be good at these things to enjoy them now there are certain games in the genre that i think you'll get way more enjoyment out of them when you are really good or when you reach the point of being very good but those games i think in my mind should be the exception rather than the rule any game in this genre that you can pick up and play because that's the nature of it. It's pick up and play. You know, this game, uh, a, a clear of this game only takes about 30 minutes. So it's real respectful of your time in that sense. You know, you can sit down and play this thing for 10, 15, 20 minutes and get as far as you can and, you know, maybe start over once or twice, but really feel like you put in some good time and had some fun with it and learned a little bit more about the game each time you play it and say, oh yeah, there's that enemy there that's tricky and I got to watch that. Or, oh, there's this pattern here that maybe if I, you know, if I quickly rush to the top of the screen and take them all out really quickly, I won't have to deal with that big barrage of bullets. And then I can concentrate on these, you know, these uh, dorks over here that are, you know, doing these flames or whatever. And, and those are the kinds of things that the kinds of conversations I want to spark, the kinds of participation I want to see. So th this is exactly why I started this thing. And it's like, 
yes, more people to come in, more people who can be self-deprecating like me and say, well, I suck at these games. Well, that's okay. You can be less than, you know, pro gamer at this stuff and still have fun with it. And you don't have to play for score to enjoy it. Now, eventually you may find that that's more fun for you when you get better at it. But for now, just play it and enjoy it. Get whatever you can out of the experience. Let's talk about it and have some fun. And, you know, let's learn a little bit from each other about the game and how we're playing and what we're doing and what works and what doesn't. That's that's what's it about. That's what it's about for me. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of people undersell the importance of a little bit more socialization with playing these games because I know for sure had I not started my podcast and started interviewing these super players who are just these complete beasts and like talking with people on my Discord, I wouldn't have been as motivated to play and improve as much as I have been. So, I think participating in these shmup clubs, even if you start off, you know, not doing very well, I think just the the participation alone is going to get you a lot further, a lot faster than you think. Absolutely. Yeah, I would also say that in our current YouTube slash speedrunning culture, the it sets up a lot of false expectations for instantly being good at something or that, that if, I, if I can't do a perfect run, I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, I think that's true. Because you only see the really good clears, the amazing plays. You never see like my five trillion attempts where I'm just getting wrecked by Dodonpachi for hours and hours. So that's not on my YouTube channel. <laughs> and that's and that's one of the things I like about streaming is I'm playing this game and I'm streaming it. So I am literally, unless it's a game that I already know well and we picked it for the month. But I mean, I went into this game cold. You know, I maybe played it once for a few minutes to try it out before the first time that I streamed just to get a feel for how it was going to work and make sure that I was that my pad was synced up and all that stuff. But otherwise, I sat down and I watched the tutorial on uh, original mode in Novice when I first played and I was sitting there kind of reading it aloud and and uh, you know, looking at the mechanics and then I just dove in and I started playing. And so when I started playing, you know, it was cold and you could see my progress throughout the course of the month as you watch the different streams. Uh, now, now, I'm not asking anybody to go back and watch all my streams, because, you, you know, that's a pretty big commitment. But I'm saying I, I like that, that for me, in doing it that way, I can document my progress in the game very organically and very in a very real fashion. Um, because I'm every time I sit down to play this game, I'm streaming it. Uh, and so you're seeing what I'm learning and how I'm improving as the month goes on. Uh, and so for anyone that has the ability to do that, even if they just record themselves or in a game like this that has a replay function, allow yourself to save a few replays, even a few terrible plays where you barely get through stage one or you, you know, you totally bomb out in, in stage two within about 30 seconds. Save that replay because then you can go back and watch it and you can say, oh, yeah, this enemy or these group of enemies came in over here and they started firing. I should be over here instead. Or maybe I should take those guys out first so then I can deal with this other threat who's maybe a little bit less of a less of a pain. Because then that is that's how you go back and learn how to do this stuff more. And you can start to get a feel for how these things work. And realistically, these are are skills that you can apply to other games in the genre. Even if they're not exactly the same, a lot of the same principles will still apply. Yeah, I definitely agree. 
Yeah, it's really hard for anybody to be in and to make snap decisions in the spur of a moment as they're playing. It's really only once you go back and you look through and reevaluate that you can see things. That's why watching uh, super plays or other people's plays is very important as well because you see, oh, you know, I did this in here, but they're doing this. Maybe I should give that a shot. And then you find that, hey, maybe it works for you, maybe it doesn't. It's always worth experimenting and seeing what other people are doing in Schwab's, and it's not cheating. Yeah, definitely not. All right, let's go on to a later post by Cointin Goku. I hate to break the bad news, but there are two forms of TLBs, or true last bosses, two in this game, if you don't already know. True Dojin style! <laughs> I love this game. On the Super Play Arcade Original, the player gets 300 plus billion on just the first level. The scores are ridiculous in this game, but I love it. I'll attach a commentary PDF for you guys to see what he strives for. Point blaking and using a break and double break as much as possible. Again, we talked about that. Always be breaking. ABB is crucial for maximum point accumulation. <laughs> yeah, we spoke on this earlier, but yeah, it's always true on there. You want, you always want to be breaking in order to get the most points on there. So you're going to be locking on, you're going to be firing, moving, locking on, firing. So you can always get in the most maximum amount of hits. And there, and we talked about earlier with the lock on, so that way you can get the most out of your popcorn enemies. Don't waste your popcorn. And get <clears throat> yourself as much of a break meter as possible. And it's really is the key to well, setting the world on fire in this game. All right, uh, let's see. Here we have the later, later post. Okay, so I had a remarkable breakthrough this morning. I finally figured out what is extremely important to always use. Break and double break when there is a green 9x or 12x multiplier that is displayed underneath the break meters. You increase the x by locking onto multiple enemies and unleashing over and over. Then you score big puntos. <laughs> I think this guy was in one of my streams once because... <laughs> That made me laugh. He mentioned something about big puntos and made me laugh. <laughs> That's gonna be another one there. Uh, just thought I will. Just thought I would lay this out there for the point chasers. Oh, you know the point chaser sounds a little bit like it'd be um, a name of it. We got the game chasers. Why don't we have the point chasers? It can be a a shmup duel. The point chasers. Yeah, the the big puntos almost uh, makes me think of <laughs> makes me think of what was it. Uh, um, Sarah was streaming the uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was uh, it was Game Tengoku Two, I think. And uh, every time you get a bonus item, one of the characters is like Pointo Geta, <laughs> and so <laughs> made me think of that. Yeah, I have this stream. You can see it on my channel. It's my Ketsui uh, Death Thingy. Uh. And the guy, yeah, the guy, I remember the, this must be the same guy because he mentioned getting big puntos and it made me laugh. <laughs> nice. Alright, we've got a hot tip coming in. Hey guys, new tip I learned from watching some videos. If you have the Type Z ship, you can put a Type 1 skin on it by holding the brake button while selecting the Z ship. Alternate oh, cool. skins. Yeah. That's one of the things that probably would have been interesting to see on this. Is like maybe different types of. I don't know how you could go with different types of ships or something on there, but nothing quite horse armor. I would like to see some maybe like crazy ship designs or maybe you could, something that you could do on this would be really cool. Like if if you could uh, make your ship look like uh, the Vic Viper, or, I mean, I'm sure that's copyright infringement, but if it's done via user, who cares? Uh, right. 
Or custom ship colors would be sick. Like, I've always wanted custom ship colors in some of my shmups. Like, you could... There's a little config mode where you can make your ship black and... Or, like, whatever color you want. That'd be cool. Yeah. That's kind of like, uh... <laughs> kind of like with, uh... Uh, what is it, Raiden Fighter's Jet, where you can play as the fairy, or uh, Einhander, where you can unlock the ability to fly around as one of the police car ships that is in the first level of the game, and and fun stuff like that, you know, it, it, yeah. it's kind of cool that there is a little extra like that. Oh, the all-powerful fairy in Raiden 4 Overkill. That game is a lot of fun. If you haven't tried it out, definitely snag a copy. Nice. All right, I'm going to leave you the high scores because I'm not going to be reading like six million zeros on <laughs> Sure. So, uh, you know, as I as I mentioned before, our our uh, I guess you would call him our MVP for the month is definitely Zoido. He had massive participation and submitted a ton of scores and ended up getting a whole bunch of high scores in several of these game modes. So, in novice original mode, Zoido scored 509,699,519,050 points. You know who should read this? We should get the the um Google Voice lady. <laughs> Have you ever done that? <laughs> and made her read like these massive numbers. It's really funny. Oh, uh, that'd be a good one to do sometime. In uh in novice boost mode, uh Zoido got uh 1,970,000 69,510 points. And uh, again, that's uh, we mentioned that boost mode, the scores are much lower. Now, in arcade original mode, you actually, Mark, were the high score leader there with 353,099,482,030 points. That's right. Zoido had to be stopped. I couldn't let him just full sweep the entire scoreboard. <laughs> People were messaging me, Mark, you, you need to stop this guy. He's out of control. So <laughs> I had to do what I had to do. Uh, yeah, we've had a couple of those in uh, in previous months where somebody really took to a game and, and just uh, demolished everybody else. And so it's cool to see that uh, even, you know, even someone as, as into it as, uh, as Zoido, you know, like you say, he didn't full sweep, uh, but he did. He did sweep the rest of the modes here in uh, arcade difficulty. I should have played some more modes. Yeah, there you go. Huh. In arcade boost mode, he had uh, five hundred seventy-three million one hundred seventy-three thousand points. In arcade ultimate mode, he got twenty-seven million two hundred thirty-seven. Or no, excuse me, twenty-seven billion. 237,332,790 points. And then in arcade time attack mode, uh, he had 35,349, or no, excuse me, 35,349,150 points. And I want to say he just edged me out in uh, arcade time attack. I got real close no. to that. I think, I think I had something like 34... Uh, thirty-four and a half million or something like that. So I was, I was close, but uh, yeah, he definitely, he definitely did that. Now a couple of honorable mentions that I wanted to make. Uh, you mentioned him earlier, Mark, but uh, KZ uh, or KZ the Kuso player, as he goes by on Discord, he was playing the game too, 
you know, kind of alongside us, but uh, not really on the forum, but participating kind of with us in your old Discord. And uh, he man he managed to score over one trillion points in novice original mode. He got the trill, which is insane to think about. You know, successfully routing and and planning out your your break strategy and all of that in in novice original to get that kind of score. So hats off to KZ for destroying novice original. Uh, and then also um, a streamer named Cows Landler, which is spelled kind of like it sounds. Um, th there's apparently another a shmup book club run by uh, someone else, and I can't remember the streamer's name off the top of my head, but he does this shmup book club where they, you know, like we do, they pick a different shoot 'em up every month, and then they play, and they have scoring competitions, and, and they do it to where the people who score the, the best during a particular game, you know, the top three or top five or whatever it is, they get to rotate out and then pick the next game. And uh, Crimson Clover happened to be their sort of quarterly challenge game, they were playing alongside the other monthly selections. And so he was streaming this game a few times. So I watched some of his streams, picked up a few things, and then he came and watched a couple of my streams and picked up a few things. And uh, he ended up uh, getting some decent scores in Arcade Original. And um, he was employing a strategy that I started to use toward the end of the month and a feature that we didn't mention in the game, but uh, especially in that first stage... Um, if you're doing poorly, you can pause the game and then restart the level. Uh, and so I, I reached a point where I was like, I'm not going to tolerate a single death in the first stage. I have to get through stage one, no deaths. So if I would take a stray bullet or run into an enemy or get caught by a laser or something, pause, restart. And I did that several times, uh, you know, just to, as a way to tighten up my approach on that first stage uh, in Arcade Original. And so it was fun to watch his streams and chat with him a little bit and pick up some pointers from him and then, you know, use that to help improve my game as well. Yeah, I did that up through stage two, where if I didn't get a certain score benchmark by the end of stage two, I'd just restart, mm. which sometimes was really frustrating because I'm like, oh, because you'd be at the final boss and then the boss claws you at the end and you die you're like no i gotta restart oh yes i think it does help yeah those claws on that stage two boss i got caught way too many times <laughs> yeah the claws merciless yep well gentlemen any final thoughts that we want to impart regarding crimson clover if you have a pc i would recommend getting it definitely if you're a pc schmupper buy it it's cheap as well cheap as dirt yeah. Yeah, and it's also I think we might have mentioned this earlier, I don't know, but on the Shmup System Eleven forums, they do this yearly poll and Crimson Clover's extremely high up on that list. It's number five? I can't remember what it was, but yeah. it's extremely high. And it's the definitely the highest indie shmup ever, so it's kind of a landmark in the genre in a lot of ways, especially for indie shmups. Indefinitely, yeah. Yeah, it's number five on the top twenty five list. And uh, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that over the course of the next year or so, you're going to see Zero Ranger rise and you may see Rolling Gunner get in the list with uh, further exposure on, on Switch um, because 
you know, not everybody is, it's not available digitally. And so uh-huh. since the only way to, to play it right now is to buy the indie DVD release, fewer people are playing it. But I think once more people start playing that, it's going to be a little bit of a, an interesting uh, arms race, I guess you could say, between Zero Ranger, Rolling Gunner, and Crimson Clover because they're they're three very different games, you know. Crimson yeah. Crimson Clover being a vertical bullet hell shoot 'em up, Rolling Gunner being a horizontal bullet hell shoot 'em up, which you don't see very often. Um, but nope. you know, reminiscent in some ways of something like Pro Gear, No Arashi, um, but then having kind of an interesting mechanic with the rotating gun pod that you can position and then lock in place. Uh, and then, of course, Zero Ranger being definitely more of an old school type of game, not so much bullet hell, but more, you know, kind of classic arcade vertical shoot 'em up. And so it'll be interesting to see how those shake out. There's also you got to keep your eye out for uh, Blue Revolver double action. That'll be probably showing up sometime soon. Mm, yes, that could be big. I'm actually surprised Blue Revolver didn't make it on the list. My personal prediction is that overall, I feel Maybe this is a bit of a hot take, but overall I feel like Zero Ranger is vastly superior to Rolling Gunner for a lot of reasons. And I wouldn't be surprised if Rolling Gunner didn't make as much of a splash as Zero Ranger does, but maybe that's just me. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention is uh, Jamers, uh, or Jamers91 as he is on YouTube, he has uh, some runs of Crimson Clover that are quite adept. And so Mm -hmm. if you want to... If you want to see some high-level play, uh, and you know, kind of get of an get an idea of what this game looks like in action, but played by someone with uh, more skill than myself, go watch some of his replays. You know, you'll see that even at his high level of play, you know, he's still dying during the course of the game uh, a few times, and so it's uh, it's really cool to see and to watch kind of his progression through the game and and i i kind of watched his runs and then tried to copy some of what he was doing or at least use some of that strategically to try and and uh improve my play and so definitely recommend watching those yeah i've watched his run like a hundred times not a hundred times but like 20 times (laughs) all right so coming up next um as we record this it is early in april And by the time you hear this episode, it should be closer to the middle of the month. We will be well into playing Einhander for the original PlayStation, uh, uh, developed and published by Squaresoft, and uh, released uh, worldwide on the original PlayStation. Um, The U.S. release is a little pricey, uh, but the Japanese version is still fairly reasonable so if you have means to play that uh, either japanese console or you know pro action replay or or modded system or whatever definitely check out einhander and uh, if you're not already come sign up on the forum thread and participate with us during the month of april and for the month of may we will be playing gradius 3 uh, now we're going to be taking a look at both the arcade original and the super nintendo version uh now of course you can get a super nes or a super famicom cartridge for that and as far as the arcade release uh there's a readily available 
PS2 version, that's a compilation of Gradius 3 and 4, and on the PSP, there's the Gradius Collection, which has Gradius 1 through 4 and Gradius Gaiden on it, and which also happens, yeah, that's great. also happens to be the only legitimate Western release of Gradius Gaiden, so, so highly recommended there. Now, of course, those who don't own those systems or whatever can still feel free to participate and, you know, emulate the arcade version on MAME or whatever, um... You know, just let us know what format you're playing and, um, you know, take screenshots and and definitely come participate on that one because that's going to be uh, that's going to be a fun one. Gradius three is notoriously brutal. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see what kind of progress people make uh, in both the arcade and Super Nintendo versions and, you know, how that kind of goes throughout the month. Uh, I'll be streaming both. Um, so. Yeah, definitely, definitely make sure you check that out. Do you know much about the difference between the two versions? Because I have the SNES version, and is it just unusually laggy, or is the arcade version also really laggy as well? Uh, no, the Super Nintendo version is unusually laggy, I think in part because it was a launch title, uh, and so it wasn't very well optimized. Uh, and, yeah. and then, of course, the Super NES is not known for being very adept at shoot 'em ups that have a lot going on. Uh, certainly, later in the life of the console, you know, there were some impressive games like uh, like Axelay or uh, especially uh-huh. like Space Megaforce. There's a lot going on in that game, or Super Super LS. But yeah, unlike the Genesis, which seemed to produce about a new shooter every other month that was, you know, really good and performed well and had minimal or relatively unobtrusive slowdown. Uh, Gradius 3 on the Super NES is, yeah, it's just, it's just real laggy or, or it has a lot of, of slowdown, I think, in many ways, because it was just an early game and it wasn't well optimized. Yeah. Makes you wonder if the lack of shmups on the uh, SNES has to do with restrictive Nintendo was, or if the devs just thought they couldn't get them to get them to run on it. I don't know. Could be. I mean, there's still there's still a fair number of them, but it seems like there are more on the Genesis and the PC Engine or TurboGrafx-16, and that, generally speaking, those games run better on those other systems than they do on the Super Nintendo. Yeah. Did you ever play the uh, Macross SNES shmup? That one's pretty cool. Uh, Scrambled Valkyrie? Yeah. Okay. I have not, unfortunately. That's pretty cool. Okay, I'm sidetracking you. Go ahead. <laughs> no, you're fine. So that's what we've got coming up uh, for April and May, of course. So again, make sure you check out the rfgeneration.com, go to the community playthroughs section of the forum, and uh, you know, sign up and just make a post on there saying you want to participate. We'll add you to the list. And then have some great discussion with us and post your scores. And like I said, you know, it doesn't matter if you're any good at these things or not. Just play, have fun, talk about the game with us. And, uh, you know, maybe we can all help each other out and, you know, help each other improve our game. Yeah, and I do plan on playing Einhander. Einhander. So you all better play. (laughs) Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I've, I've already been streaming the game, so... I'm coming after y'all. I'm going <laughs> to invade you guys. There you <laughs> so, go. Very <laughs> just cool. Just because I think it's such a cool idea that it's like the one shmup Square ever made. So Yeah, it is It is really unique. I mean, it was during that period kind of 
when they were ramping up during the early PlayStation era, I think because of the newness of the CD media, media and what they could do with it, and it was before before they, I think, understood that they were going to sell millions of copies of Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy VIII. You know, they, they experimented with a bunch of genres, and so even though they only ever put the one game out, I'm glad we got it because, um, you know, it's a unique and interesting game, and has a cool mechanic that I is kind of a fun fun hook. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, that whole era cool. was full of experimentation. And look at you've got Einhander, Gradius Gaiden, R Type Delta to a little bit of a lesser extent. But there was a, a lot of people just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what stuck. And yeah, one of the most interesting times. Yeah. So uh, let's let's go ahead and just shout out a few folks. Of course, we always want to shout out Sir Flash of Studio Mudprints and Bullet Heaven for our logo, which you can now find on a T-shirt that you can buy at Redbubble. So just go to redbubble.com and search, search for Shoot the Core or Shoot the Core-Cast, and you will find this shirt as the top or one of the top results and uh, help support the podcast by picking up a shirt and sporting it proudly. We also want to thank uh, Kogasu for the intro and outro music and uh, the RFGeneration.com staff and uh, the guys from the Playcast, Single Banana and Grey Ghost 81. And obviously their um, RF Generation Playcast podcast is another one you should definitely check out. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the 2019 RF Generation NES Challenge Make sure you go check that thread out and see if there are any NES games that haven't been beat yet that you want to try and take on before the end of this year. Um, we also like to thank everybody who participated for this month. Thanks again. Yes. And as I've mentioned multiple times during this podcast and previous recordings, I am streaming. And so I'm on YouTube and on Twitch. Uh, I'm Game Boy Guru on YouTube and Guru Game Boy on Twitch because for some reason Game Boy Guru was already taken or they wouldn't let me choose that name. But uh, find me there. Come chat with me in the streams and watch me uh, play and get frustrated and and uh, yell at the TV and say things like "You loser! You jerk! You turkey!" You know, at all Waking the up. at all the at all the enemies. <laughs> Uh, even though, you know, generally speaking, it's my fault. So, Have you ever played Blazing Star? Whenever you die, it has those, like, taunting quotes. Waking up? <laughs> or, or like, a Gradius, uh, Gradius 4 or Gradius Gaiden. You need more practice. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, good stuff. All right. Anything else you guys want to add? Obviously, Mark, you shout out yourself and your podcast. Where can people find you? Oh, sure. So I run a podcast called the Electric Underground Podcast. Uh, it's hosted on SoundCloud, but it's on literally everything I could think of. So it's on iTunes. I think it's on Google Play now. I put it on there. It's on whatever. You'll find it. Just type the Electric Underground Podcast or Shmup Podcast. Um, other than that, I do have a, a new Reddit that I started called Shmup STG. And it's basically just full of my articles or whatever. And also we do some playthroughs and stuff from time to time too. Scoring competitions, so... Check that out. <laughs> I have a website, too, that has a bunch of cool stuff, a video index of a bunch of shmup replays, and uh, I just added this input lag thing, so if you want to figure out 
how laggy some Switch games are. I got some listings on there. Awesome. All right. That's all I got for you. Sounds pretty cool. And definitely, hopefully, there's some stuff on there regarding joysticks. I do need to do that, actually. Or arcade Yeah, I'll probably end up working on that a little bit. Yeah, I could definitely use some pointers in that area. Yeah, as like, for instance, if you guys want to play with a Saturn pad or whatever on, on PC, there isn't actually an official Saturn pad that's USB that was released by Sega that's really good. I actually have it. Hmm. I think they're really expensive now, too, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I'd also keep an eye out. I think there's this, there's some company that's doing new Saturn pads that are supposed to be pretty good. I can't remember what they were. Retrobit. Retro Retrobit, yeah. I, I might review one of those, actually. So keep an eye out for that. I'll probably review one and put the review on my website. You can call your series, Is It Shmupable? <laughs> Can it handle a shmup? Yeah, shmupable. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, anything else, gentlemen? I don't think so. I want to say thank you all for playing and get ready for some Einhander. Is that game is hard. Yep. Yeah, and you guys better play it. <laughs> oh, definitely. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening, and we hope to see you next month. Adios. Goodbye.